from there, Joel. Good evening. Uh, I'd like to welcome everybody to the September oh, 28th. Mike? Yeah. Okay. Great. September 28th uh, meeting of the Transportation Commission. Um, we are sort of meeting half in person and half virtual tonight, which is exciting. So I'm going to call roll, and if you could respond with a reply uh, um, when I call your name, that'd be great. Um, so let's start with Patrick Wu. Present. Please, um, um, AJ. Present. Brian McGee. Present. Faith Zibold. Present. Kurt Barfield, present. Um, that's it for now. Oh, there's. Hello? Yes. Oh, oh, oh I fail. fail. <laughs> <laughs> we just have a, another member that joined us. Go ahead and join us. Figured it out. Raphael. Hello, hello. So uh, I'm just calling a roll right now. So if you just from your presence, Raphael Fernandez. Thank you. Here. Awesome. Thank you very much. Okay, so uh, the next item would be items from the audience. Do we have any uh, items or folks that want to chime in? The next step, um, spreading from memory here, is our um, approval of the minutes from the last meeting, which was in May. No, no, May, June. Yes, June. Now, do I hear any comments from of those minutes? No, I'll make the motion to approve them. Thank you. Second. Second. approved. Um, so let's see the first thing on our agenda. Again, I'm running from memory here. Ah, thank you. Um, okay, thanks. thanks first item on our agenda is the 2023-2028 Transportation Capital Improvement Program uh, update. And with us is um, Rod Steitzer. And um, do you have anybody else? Oh, and then we have um, from finance. I think we have we have Kevin Pellstring with us, Kurt. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. So um, look forward to this update on the CIP. And um, uh, our focus tonight is on sort of the uh, strategic level, not on a per, per se um, project by project uh, commenting at all. It's just at this point, we're looking at an overview. And if there's any comments on the, on, that we'll let's look forward to addressing those. Rod, you want to hit the start? Yeah, great. Hey, thank you, Kirk. Good evening, uh, everyone. It's always good to be back here. Um, like mentioned earlier, we have Kevin Pelstring with us. Uh, Kevin is our financial planning supervisor. Um, we're going to be tag teaming this presentation together, and you know, as we go through it, if there's any questions, uh, feel free to jump in at any time. Uh, Kurt, I will. Uh, just say that I had to turn up my volume to kind of hear. I don't know if the microphone is away from the table or whatever. So if I don't um, hear the questions, um, you know, I think maybe I'll ask 
Kevin and others to kind of get my attention somehow, <laughs> waving a hand or something like that. Okay, that sounds great. Thanks, Rod. All right, great. Um, so just quick outline here. Um, gonna accompany the memo that we included uh, in your packet here. Uh, we don't have too many slides, maybe you know about 10 or so, 10 to a dozen slides. Uh, things we wanna go over is kind of the timeline that we're looking at for the development of the CIP. Uh, we'll kind of go ahead and uh, share the priorities that were adopted through resolution to develop the CIP. Uh, we will then also have um, uh, some high level looks at the proposed transportation CIP specifically, highlighting some changes. And then as time allows, um, maybe just kind of discuss a little bit or just share with you all what are some of the project-related discussions that are going on uh, just in the CIP program in general? Uh, so with that, um, the CIP policy focus is the title of this. Um, that's because it, it gives us flexibility. Uh, policies in there because of the documents that we do. Um, one of the very first documents that we did, and I'll be covering it in a few slides, or Kevin and I will be covering it in a few slides after this, is on April 5th, we established priorities through resolution. So in other words, there's you know, a little bit over a handful of priorities that were established for the development of the CIP that keeps us in tune with market conditions, uh, safety concerns, et cetera, like that, and prioritize needs of the infrastructure that we have. So we'll get into that a little bit. Um, July 19th, we actually uh, were able to sit down at, with council at the study session and discuss a preliminary look at the CIP. Uh, we received those comments, have been making adjustments, and throughout the course of the year, uh, we do stay in close contact. Uh, it's a partnership, financial planning, uh, public works in general, uh, all of the uh, people that have stake in the CIP, which is pretty much every uh, group that we work with. So we presented that on the 19th and we're updating that now. The arrow here kind of shows where we are. We're right before the October 4th study session. Uh, so, you know, your comments and feedback uh, certainly welcome uh, so that we can make that presentation to council a more meaningful one and um, have some good feedback of things that maybe uh, we're not looking at um, in a certain way. November 15th is the final CIP session, uh, if we need that. So um, historically, yes, we've also done that CIP study session on November 15th. However, if the October 4th one looks all aligned, everything's uh, squared away, funding strategies are put in place, uh, we may not need that one, but historically we have used that one. And then our final adoption is on December 13th. Kevin, did you want to maybe, I'm not sure if I missed anything, just double check me there. Are those dates look good? Those dates look good. Yeah, I think uh, we do have some updates that we'll probably make on uh, the November 15th meeting. I'm not sure if it'll be a study session yet, um, but I think we're, we're getting pretty close and uh, just making some kind of final adjustments and we'll get some more feedback from council uh, next Tuesday. Great. Okay, um, the resolution. Uh, so uh, each year we do um, work through the city manager's office to adopt um, various priorities for the development of the CIP. Um, listed are the top seven here. 
right there. In fact, they're all seven. So um, the very first thing is to complete projects that were in the 21 and 22 work plan. So we had previously adopted the CIP. We wanna make sure that we're going forward uh, and complete those projects. Uh, another high priority is to complete those public safety investments that help police and fire strategic plans um, be realized. So we have a lot of fire stations in construction right now. Uh, we also have started design of two more. So that second priority is all about public safety. A third priority um, is to complete the utility and transportation projects necessary for all the work that we're doing related with WASHDOT and sound transit, specifically I-405, 85th. And we're also supporting the transit-oriented development um, incentivized by the North East 85th Street Station Area Plan. And priority three is a big one, takes a lot of um, collaboration throughout the city. So I'll kind of just pause there for a second and see if Kevin or Joel, if I missed anything with that priority or if there's any other uh, important information to cover with that one. Nothing? Good? Looks, sounds good to me. Okay, great, thanks. Um, another, the fourth priority, uh, and I think um, this commission's really in tune with this, is complete those projects necessary to ensure that we meet our transportation concurrency investments to keep pace with the development that's happening. Our region has seen a lot of development, uh, specifically in the last, you know, five to 10 years, so we want to make sure we keep pace with those needs. Um, the fifth one is really a parks-related one. We want to make sure that we're investing in our park areas um, that increase the active recreation opportunities throughout the city for a diverse group of the population and the needs. Uh, priority six, invest in the water, sewer, and storm projects um, according to the priorities contained within their associated master plans and as identified in the station area plan. And then the last uh, priority is to create measurable goals towards achieving the council's 11 goals. There's also a couple of um, additional elements that we discuss when we put together the prioritization of the CIP. Um, and those are some policy directions that are really related to economics or other uh, requirements. Uh, there's two in this case. and because there is such growth going on and because there is um, a lot of inflation, we always do consider potentially deferring projects or reprioritizing projects if the funding or if the inflation continues. Now, to date, we're not at that level where we're deferring any projects or reprioritizing, but it is something that we do consider every year. And then also, We've been, the city of Kirkland has been lucky enough and fortunate enough and have had a great team putting together grant packages or other related contractual partnerships, sound transit, et cetera. Um, we wanna complete those projects that are associated with those contractual relations or grant awards. 
So those two things together help us complete our policy uh, level and direction for our prioritization of developing the CIP. As we do this, sometimes it's um, helpful to look at a map of the CIP projects and all of our projects are contained within a map. Uh, this may not be the clearest image, um, but what it is showing is that uh, should we have a need to develop maps, review things, uh, we do have that capability with in-house. And um, this map is showing the funded projects proposed in our 23 to 28 CIP. Included in your packet is that proposed preliminary CIP um, matrix of projects. Um, on this screen here, it's probably not the clearest. Um, I know that uh, Kevin is ready to go should we need to look at that, but Kurt, with your opening statements of kind of looking at the higher level first, uh, maybe we can you know answer questions of clarity uh, on that level first and then get into any specifics. But what we're looking at here is 50 projects plus six stationary plan projects. The stationary plan projects are included at the top. Those are related to the development in the station area. Um, and one thing to, to note on this one is on the far right column, um, we added the funding source as funded through stationary plan mechanisms. Now those mechanisms are still being developed. And so they're not actual funding sources. And Kevin, you might, might have to phone a friend on this one, but it is likely that those funding mechanisms may not be finalized prior to December 13th. And I'll hit the pause button there again and see, Kevin, if you want to add some discussion on that. Sure. Uh, so what we did for the, for this particular thing, uh, this particular um, note here, the funded through SAP mechanisms, is basically we wanted to, to leave some flexibility knowing that a lot of the planning around the stationary plan and the development is ongoing. Uh, and, you know, we're, there's some uncertainty about um, which projects will be funded by developers or which projects will be funded by impact fees. And, and we'll have more and more certainty about that as we get a little bit closer to some of those developments kicking off. Uh, so you'll notice that there's not actually any of those. Um, the only project that we had previously identified as funded through uh, stationary plan mechanisms was the, um, it was the implementation plan. I'm trying to find it. Uh, Northeast 85th Station Area Transportation Implementation Plan, which is a, a design for the, the 85th corridor, corridor, and that's occurring in 2024. So that's the only project that we noted previously as uh, being funded through SAP mechanisms, but now um, we've designated that to be funded through general fund cash. So the rest of those are in the out years, which means that they're not part of the 23-24 uh, um, budget, which will be adopted in December. Um, so we'll have a little bit more time to, to finalize those and see how development works out and, and uh, where the, the development agreements and, and impact the revenue uh, may be coming from. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. Great explanation. We also have updated our unfunded list of projects. Uh, the unfunded list of projects does include other things associated with the station area. Um, and you may notice that there used to be three columns. We're now at two columns. Um, we really found there was some overlap in some of the previous columns. So consolidating and simplifying uh, how the unfunded projects are arranged 
for example, that column on the right are potential external funding candidates projects. So it's simplified. We can find whichever ones might be grant eligible, those kind of things. Um, and we listed them all in one column. So a little bit more simplicity, but yet more uh, effective way of representing that. Um, in summary, and Kevin, I'm not sure if you want to take this one. Um, I think you, you've probably even presented this slide at one time in the past, maybe. Sure. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, happy to. So this, this is kind of that bird's eye view um, of, of some of the changes that have happened in the transportation CIP. So um, the total funded program um, between 23 and 26, which is the, the common period between the, the 21, 26, which is the previously adopted CIP, and this new one, the 2328, uh, so that in total, that program is fun, uh, funded program is increased by 61 million. Um, in addition, uh, we've added $39.8 million worth of projects in, in the 2728 um, biennium. Um, and that includes, that total includes $16.8 million of developer delivered projects as part of the Northeast 85th station area plan. So uh, those are projects that are expected to, um, that came out of the initial, um, fiscal analysis and, and community benefits analysis uh, that was delivered to council last year as part of the, the station area plan. Um, those are projects that are anticipated uh, to be built by uh, developers, um, but in order to, um, you know, for full transparency and, you know, in case anything changes, we've included those in the CIP as well uh, in a separate um, section. And those are just estimates because uh, the exact cost will depend on um, the delivery by the developer. Um, so selection criteria, uh, the, the top um, kind of top pieces for transportation is, uh, as discussed in the prioritization, is to finish the projects in the 21-22 work plan, uh, to finish the, the five-star projects, the ones that uh, Rod often calls the five-star projects. So uh, I think that's uh, 124th, uh, Juanita Drive. What, what are the ones? 100th. 100th. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the other ones here is, is prepare the prioritization for, for TBD funding. Um, so basically, you know, understanding that there's gonna be a, a lot more funding uh, that's designated and that's funded through SAP mechanisms that will, um, will begin to, to flow into our, um, into our operating budget in the 23, sorry, the 2025, 2026 budget. Uh, so kind of start thinking about how we're gonna um, load those um, projects in um, and, I'm sorry, I was, I was thinking about the stationary plan again. Uh, prepare the prioritization for the TBD funding. So uh, as part of this uh, CIP, we've included, you'll see some debt proceeds for um, a project um, that is, is representing uh, the plan. If, if council goes forward with um, a vehicle license fee as part of the, the transportation benefit district, um, that would uh, support uh, a bond proceeds of about $21 million towards projects uh, that have been um, worked out through council and um, led by, by the transportation and public works group um, uh, related to the active transportation plan and the safer routes of school um, program um, projects. So all of those have, have been um, you know, narrowed down and, and we have a, a good list of priority projects that will be included uh, and you'll see that those debt proceeds um, start to hit the, the CIP in 2024 um, and then uh, go through 2027. And we do have some funding, some ongoing funding uh, in the Safer Routes to School Action Plans implementation and a few other projects that 
Uh, we're also planning to use for, for that package of projects, which is I think the top 40 projects within the Safer Routes School and Active Transportation Plan. Um, I don't know if you wanna go into more detail on that, Rod. Uh, no, but yeah, thanks. That's a great, there's, there's okay. over 150 projects associated that, you know, we've assessed and Joel's team assessed and looked at it. And um, the top 40 is the ones that were uh, the highest uh, priority that we're looking at. I, this is Faith DeBolt. I have a couple of questions. That's is now a good time to ask. Yeah. Um, the uh, 61 million, um, how much of that is roughly percentage wise um, is because of um, just increased cost of doing the projects versus new projects? Um, we, yeah, each project was a little different um, and included in that 61 million is a number of our annual projects. Uh, so currently those annual projects are maintaining a steady um, funding level throughout the year, but they could be inflated as well. Um, offhand, I don't have the collective sum of those that we inflated, but I think generally speaking, um, I think you can count as roughly about somewhere in that five to 10% range. It's because of increased cost of yeah. already planned projects. Yeah. In, you know, recent years, and um, I'm not sure if uh, I had shared the construction cost index uh, last one or two times that I've been here, but in recent years, the construction cost index in the Seattle area is gone up tremendously, um, over 26% between 2020 and 2021. And then that was uh, coupled with another really high, greater than 10% number the following year. So uh, trends on costs are going up significantly. Um, but I think when we planned the 23 and 24 budget, we actually assumed a combination of inflationary numbers ranging from 6% to 15%. And so the average is right in that five to 10% range, you know. And and I think I just did a, a really rough back of the envelope math here. And I think about two thirds of that 61 million is um, from new projects. Uh, so that I think that the other additional 20 million is, uh, is new expenses or Somewhere around that, I would say that's that's really rough. So, um, if that's something you're interested, in, we could we could pull that out. Okay. Um, and my other question, um, I'm just trying to get a better sense of um, the dollar amount that you're like sharing about the developer delivered projects. Um, is that because they are being developed in their for public use and on in public right of way? The the dollars that's sixteen point eight million there sixteen point eight. Mm -hmm. Um, Kevin, that's that is right away related stuff, isn't it? Yeah. So I, Joel might be able to speak to it more. Um, but those are those are projects that are uh, associated with the development in the station area plan um, that it basically are going to be triggered by some of the expected development. Um, and I don't have all the details of, of uh, which developments those may be triggered by, um, but those are, you know, 
because of, of uh, new density in an area or um, new uh, trips that have been initiated, it's expected that, um, that those developers will be uh, required to, to uh, actually build those projects themselves. Yeah, and that is, um, that's all associated with the public right-of-way. So those are projects for public benefit yeah. in, the, in the public right-of-way. Okay. There you yeah. go. <clears throat> much, much pithier answer from Joel. Yeah. So, um, Joel, just to, to add on to that, is that kind of connected to like um, the quadrant chain connections to the BRT station, some of that? So, um, yeah, the projects uh, that are, and I probably need the list up in front of me, but um, projects in there, a lot of them are associated directly with um, what's going on on the Lee Johnson site, but also um, what's going on um, elsewhere uh, within the six-year time frame related to um, Northeast 85th Street, 124th Avenue, Northeast um, improvements, um, those types of projects. The quadrant connections themselves um, are not included. I, I don't believe they're included in the six-year CIP. Um, the quadrant connection, the, the north west quadrant to Highlands is funded through the interchange project. And then ultimately the quadrant connection based on the development agreement that was approved with Google, the, um, the quadrant connection in the southeast quadrant will be constructed by um, by uh, Google, and I'm, I'm I cannot honestly recall if that is reflected on the CIP or not. That particular project, yeah, it's a priority one. Yeah, okay, but Thank it will you. be built as part of the redevelopment of that site. Thank you. Um, any other questions? Yeah, Patrick. Yeah, I got a couple of questions for you guys. Um, I think Kevin, you mentioned something about the vehicle licensing tax or fee, um, leveraging that for bonding capacity and so forth. Does this budget take that into consideration or is that gravy that that will help us get stuff off the unfunded list? So uh, the way that the CIP, the preliminary CIP uh, that went to council in um, in July and, and it's going to council again in October, it's based on the assumption that we'll have uh, put up bond a bond um, issue uh, worth about $21 million, which would be uh, at least partially paid for by uh, the vehicle license fee tabs. They would support the, the debt service for that. Um, so yes, the, the current budget um, that's being developed around the, the preliminary CIP that's already been in front of council is based on uh, that vehicle license fee. Um, and that's, that's the, you know, that's something that council is considering. It hasn't been approved or anything yet, um, but that's how uh, the current uh, CIP is is uh, balanced. Great. So my follow up question on that front is: um, so anything that's listed, having monies funding coming from that, those bonds and, and debt issuance, that means that if it doesn't pass, then these projects are unfunded, or you have to go back and do the do the budgeting to figure out how to uh, plug the hole. So uh, the way that this is actually set up is is the bond would be um, would be issued based on debt service around this vehicle license fee, which is council manic, which means that uh, 
uh, via the, the authority and the transportation benefit district, which the, the city council assumed, I believe earlier this year in February after a public hearing, uh, they have the authority to um, institute a, a $20 uh, vehicle license fee, which would bring in about $1.34 million a year, uh, starting, I think the, the current um, plan is expected to, uh, or the, the current proposal in front of council, I should say, uh, is expected to start in 2024. So it's not a bond that would go in front of, uh, of voters. It's, it's council manic at this time. Oh, oh. Oh, no, no, I, I, sorry, yeah, that, that makes sense. No, I was, uh, oh. my, my question, I guess, would be more, more pointed. I guess, which of these projects get dropped off if it doesn't pass? Oh, if council decides not to, to pass them. Right. So uh, it, it's all, all that funding is in one project, which is kind of a placeholder project. Um, so it would be the top 40 uh, active transportation plans and, and safer at the school um, projects, which are, are wrapped into this NMC 133, which is non-motorized uh, project. So that is a placeholder right now, uh, and Public Works is developing that list. Has that list of, of projects, but it's not individually laid out in the um, in the CIP, if I'm not mistaken, Rod. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and I would, I, I, you know, just to kind of wrap it up within a six-year funding plan. Uh, currently, without that additional um, funding from the vehicle license fee or other mechanism. Uh, what it would really do is just extend the delivery time. So it'd go past the six years. So I don't think that the project would necessarily drop off. They would just take longer to com complete. Thank you. Great explanation. Um, my other question, I think, um, is a follow-up to, I think, a previous conversation or our, our topic that we brought up back in July. I think Castle and Pascal brought it up, and then I brought it up. Uh, the week after in our meeting, but I guess I didn't in the memo. I didn't see where if there was a view of you know we're doing we're building things out, but are we able to maintain it? Right, we're doing a lot of capital, but is there enough maintenance in yes. order to to actually maintain it? Right, long term. So. Yeah, yeah. As uh, one of the things Kevin's really helping out with, and um, what we're really looking at as a public works department. I, as well as other department parks and facilities as well, is including those life cycle or ongoing maintenance costs associated with each capital development. So we have uh, financial folks within public works uh, also looking at that. So when we propose the projects going forward, we make sure that the entire budget is capturing ongoing life cycle and maintenance costs for those projects. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Some kind of language around that would, would always be helpful okay. for us to, to understand that. Okay. That was it. Making a note. online uh, have a question. Uh, Brian, let me. AJ, do you have any questions? Uh, none at the moment. Okay. Raphael, good. All right. Okay, great. Um, and Kevin, thank you for taking that slide. Uh, I knew Kevin was the right person because uh, he's seen that slide before. Okay, um, so I wanted to kind of just step into a few of the, or highlight just a few of the changes. Again, not necessarily a in the weeds kind of a thing, but just um, I think keen on the fact we've, we've highlighted inflation 
Uh, we've highlighted, you know, scarce resources, high bids, uh, I think kind of in the past. So when, when we do the development of the CIP, we're always updating and reviewing our cost estimates for projects. Uh, first one, um, we do have the uh, 124th Avenue Roadway project. Uh, we are adding funding to that in 2023. Uh, that funding will help us um, go out to bid and should the bids come in within the existing estimates, allow us to uh, execute contracts and complete that work. Um, so that's kind of the theme throughout. So I think I'll just kind of run through the rest of them with that kind of idea. Uh, 100th Avenue, uh, we had returned federal funds on that project. So in this case, uh, we received direction from council uh, to use our contingency funding to uh, replace those funds that were returned on the federal grant. Uh, Juanita Drive, uh, we moved back the timing in this case and we increased funding as well um, to align better with other work that we have going on. Um, the sound transit related projects, we clustered them in a group of three. Um, we finally um, were able to uh, reach resolution on various uh, funding parts of the agreement. And those we saw an increase come into those agreements. So we're increasing the funding on those three projects. Um, the Greenways projects, in this case, the, the um, friendly name is Stores to Shores. It's kind of catchy. Uh, we're increasing funds with those. Again, market conditions, et cetera. Um, the NM135-136, this is the crossing at Slater Avenue in 132nd um, and 124th, I guess, in Slater as well. Uh, so it's two projects there individually. Uh, the one project, the 124th, is actually at 124th Street, and it's doing some uh, improvements right at that intersection. The other project, uh, the 132nd and Slater one, is actually the CKC slash ERC crossing um, I won't call it mid-block, but it's not at the intersection, it's slightly north. Um, we're moving some funding around. I think uh, Kevin may have kind of alluded to this a little bit. Uh, street levy and pedestrian safety. Um, we're doing that in response to what, you know, insufficient ongoing funding for the program. Um, our 116th crosswalk uh, at... Kingsgate Park and Ride, added some funding there, make sure that we can uh, make that improvement come and be realized. Um, the 132nd, 116th, I-405, that's actually in construction design build right now. Uh, as construction occurs, um, as typical with many projects, uh, we find conditions in the field that are different than were anticipated. Uh, and in this case, we found a deficiency in the storm system. So we're adding some funding to address those needs. Um, and then Kevin, I think also alluded to this one, our safer routes to school and active transportation plan implementation. We're moving those back one year. Um, I believe this is one of our last slides that we have. Um, and it's really in the packet, attachment C, uh, just wanted to share with everybody uh, here tonight uh, some of the other discussions that are happening surrounding our projects uh, so that, you know, we're all in tune 
um, and understanding what are some of the dynamics with our projects. Uh, the first one up is our 108th Q jumps project. That's those are the PT04 and 05 projects. Um, we have received uh, an award for a grant to do that. Um, and what we need to do, what we want to do as a public works department is just make sure that we can deliver that a quality uh, project for both of those. Uh, and so we want to connect with WashDOT and revisit some of the permitting requirements, very similar to 100th Avenue. Um, the commitment is there to move those projects forward. We just are um, really working with WashDOT to make sure that we can realize those projects. Uh, touched really quickly on the CKC trail crossing. This is 132nd. Also, it's combined with the one that's at 124th. Um, we're prioritizing those for a construction completion in 2024. Um, we realize that, you know, although uh, there is sidewalk in the area, we want to make sure that that crossing is uh, safe. Uh, you know, several lanes and vehicles traveling uh, near an intersection, we want to make sure that that's safe, especially upon the completion of the TLC bridge. We want to make sure that connection's uh, working uh, effectively. Um, Kevin, I might want to call on you again for the tax increment financing. Uh, I can certainly discuss it. Um, has to do with growth, but uh, you know, as a finance uh, person, maybe you have a few better words to say on that. Sure. Uh, so this is a, a pretty complex uh, financial uh, arrangement that I have trouble explaining. But um, so this is one uh, new. Um, option that the, the city has, uh, thanks to a, I think 2021 um, state bill, which basically uh, opens up the opportunity for uh, the city to take advantage of um, growth, uh, property tax growth in a particular particular area, um, and to bond against that, that property tax growth um, and use those bonds to upfront pay for some of the infrastructure uh, that wouldn't wouldn't be um, that will spur some of the growth uh, that will actually uh, bring in that property tax uh, for years to come. So it's pretty complicated, but it is part of the uh, the funded the station area plan mechanisms that um, that we discussed earlier uh, that the city is is kind of um, considering. And there's a consultant on board, and um, I believe there was a, a initial discussion with the council in August, and there'll be another one in. October uh, around a few different projects, including um, uh, a sewer main project, um, a project at 124th uh, that I think Joel can speak to a little bit more, um, a parks development in Forbes Lake. Uh, so uh, just a few kind of crucial projects that would support uh, the, the growth in the station area plan as a result of, of some of the, the recent council actions. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. Um, uh, there is a couple other things in the attachment C uh, in the memo, and one of them is trends with pavement condition index. Um, I think, you know, tying to the idea in question came up earlier, are we making sure that we can maintain things going forward? Uh, that's really what this uh, discussion point is all about. Uh, we actively maintain and monitor our pavement conditions uh, for safety, for usability, um, also, uh, at our intersections, any ADA crossings, we want to make sure that we're maintaining the pavement condition as well as possible. 
So we actually measure pavement condition and we forecast out what are the resources and funding requirements needed to maintain those at a certain level. Um, further discussion is in the packet, but that's uh, an item that we just are updating council with. And then one not listed on the screen here is also um, CIP delivery in general. Um, we, you know, we've kind of alluded to it a few times, high inflation, fewer resources, long lead times on um, material delivery and procurement, uh, those kind of things coupled with the, in the area, you know, the competition, high competition for talent, uh, staffing and resources, those kind of things. Uh, just an update to council, just kind of lightly touching on all those things, um, making sure that, you know, we're, we're continuing to, to let everyone know uh, what are some of the current situations and things that we're working through when we deliver capital projects so that when we talk about funding them, we can ensure that we can deliver those funding plans. Um, I think that's really about it. Um, and I think for, yeah, yep, that's it. Let me go backwards um, to any slide that we can do here, but open it up to questions or comments. Um, I, I already made a note of the language for maintaining and life cycle related to capital investments. Uh, thank you for that comment. Um, and just see if there's any other questions, comments, or things we can discuss. Yeah, Patrick. Yeah. This is Patrick. I just had a follow up on, on that. PCI and uh, per, um, section of the of the write up. Mm -hmm. So to me, it reads as if we are not being able to keep up. We're not able to keep up, right? There, you guys are still looking at trying to find solutions for maintaining at least getting back to uh, maintain at least a PCI level of seventy. We're at seventy six right now. We're even trying to get to seventy, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, that's a great. Um, point and uh, picking that up is 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 fantastic. Uh, so when we initiated the levy of uh, 2012, we messaged that this is the beginning. And since 2012 till now, we've had had great opportunity. We've landed a few pavement condition grants. We have had development, uh, you know, with their mitigation covering some of the pavement conditions and restorations throughout our roadways and stuff. And so we don't want to count on receiving grants or count on development continuing to keep that uh, going with that momentum. So with the funding that's currently in place, the memo is discussing with the current funding, that's the projection that we have. Now, of course, we can always receive grants and development and things like that. But uh, that memo, just like you pointed out, is identifying a potential need for additional funding. Right. And just for me personally, just it, it sounds a little disconnected because we're we're saying we're going to pass this vehicle license fee, but it's not actually going to actually maintain pavement. We're adding other other capital improvements are potentially on in a bucket. I, I just think there's a little for me, there's a little disconnect in terms of we're saying we're trying to do life cycle. We're not even maintaining what we have today. 
and we're passing more monies, but the money is actually not going to be used for maintaining what we have today. Yeah, that's a great, and I did make a note of that, and I'll make sure to uh, circle with staff internally and Joel and his team, Kevin and his team. Uh, I think, you know, really um, one of the discussions that can come out of this is the prioritization and funding, uh, those kind of things. Um, and, you know, you're trying to achieve several goals uh, across the board. So um, I see, Kevin, you might have a thought here. Yeah, the one thing I was going to add, and I, I, uh, I'm not sure if this has changed, um, trying to confirm it, but uh, I believe that part of the, the plan for the vehicle license fee um, revenue, and, and there's going to be a, a um, public meeting on it on Monday, actually, um, is that part of that funding is going to go towards uh, staff members that will be, um, uh, two staff members will be working on um, median maintenance. Uh, so there is some maintenance, um, you know, capacity that will be provided by uh, this. It won't directly address the, the pavement condition index, but there is a focus on that and that will come from some of the, the vehicle license fee uh, revenue. Just wanted to highlight that. Kevin, I'm not sure if um, you might have some of the, the details on this, but um, preservation, we're looking at that on the operating side as well with funding that has been received through various revenues. Uh, I don't know if you want to mention anything about that. You're more in line to speak to that one than I am. So extra REITs coming in, applying that to potential. Oh yeah. So yeah, those decisions are, they're still, they're still swirling, but we are uh, taking uh, heed of the, uh, the revenue equity and sustainability study that was done by uh, Echo Northwest and uh, and trying to to take advantage of um, the additional REIT maintenance and REIT flexibility authority that the city has to to use uh, the real estate excise tax uh, revenue towards um, maintenance costs. So we're we're exploring all opportunities to to deploy that um, and to really make sure that we're uh, you know responding to uh, the maintenance needs in the city. Yeah, thank you, Brian. I see you have a hand up. You have a question. Uh, yeah, it kind of feeds into this part of the discussion. I was going back and looking at the the memo and um, the pavement condition and the funding that's there in the preservation program to preserve about five to six lane miles uh, of the city streets. I assume any other CIP work or um, kind of developer work that may impact roadways and effectively kind of help improve the condition would be in addition to those five to six lane miles since um, – if we would just take that by itself, it would be a hundred years to cover the whole city streets, roughly. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. When you know utility work happens, or uh, private utility or city utility, um, part of that is the requirement for restoring the roadway surface. Yeah. And um, one thing that I've been seeing is a lot of development has been happening throughout the city. Has the city considered um, any changes to the restoration standards, um, whether it be utility, developer, whatever driven, um, to often there can be cuts through pavement that are kind of narrow trenches that may not fully restore, say, bike crossing markings or uh, may not go to a full lane width. Um, some jurisdictions have um, slightly more expansive restoration standards that are applied and can also help 
it can be more costly for whoever is doing the work, but can keep the roads overall in better shape at the same time when those when that work is done. Yeah, those those we look at as well. Um, uh, I don't have those numbers or what the latest and greatest is mm-hmm. on that too, but we can certainly follow up with that. But I do know that we are looking at that as well. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, Raphael. Hi, I have a question. Uh, if you go to page five of uh, the material that you gave us here, there's a table under the move TVD revenue part I was wondering if you could walk me through something that I don't quite understand. For example, if I look at annual sidewalk maintenance program, there's $100,000 from 2023, yearly from 2023 to 2028. Am I reading this correctly? And that's saying, okay, we're funding it at $100,000 flat over all these years. Is that what this is trying to say? Um, you're on page five, you said? Yeah. Okay. Uh, on the PDF file, on the fifth page of the file. I don't have a print copy, sorry. Sure. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, and this is, I think my numbers might be slightly off. And so Attachment I'll right. B, page two. Okay. For the piece. I, sure, I, I just want to make sure I'm understanding and I'm reading this correctly, right? If I, if I look at line item, it's NMC 05700, annual sidewalk maintenance program. 100,000 every year. So does that mean flat funding for that project? So we're not assuming growth and we're not assuming uh, increasing cost over time or anything like that? Uh, that is still catching up. Uh, I, I'm looking at it, Rod. Okay. Um, yeah, so that, that is what's currently in the CIP. And, and this is something that you know Rod and I have discussed and uh, we hope to bring back to council in, in November is uh, basically deploying all available revenue and, and making sure that we're responding to, you know, inflating costs for, for a lot of these annual projects. But uh, historically, those those projects have been um, funded at, at a flat fee that, or a flat revenue, sorry, per year that, that hasn't grown. And um, that's something that now we've, now that we have all the big rocks in the CIP, uh, we want to look at it and see, you know, where, where can we, um, what other revenue can we pull together uh, in the budget to, uh, to make sure that we're increasing those um, annual projects whenever possible. But yeah, currently in the preliminary CIP, that is a flat 100,000 per year. I see. Well, thanks for clarifying that. Mm-hmm. I, I did find I, it. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> no worries. I've, uh, this is Faith. I have a couple of questions. Um, kind of continuing, the first one continuing sort of all, along this discussion of the pavement condition and, and maintenance. I'm just curious if the um, pavement condition index, um, I think Brian had mentioned, you know, uh, impacts whenever there is a, a project done, that it, how it impacts, you know, uh, bike lanes. Um, but is the considerate, is the scoring that um, the pavement condition index yield, <laughs> yields, um, uh, does it consider impacts on um all modes, um, or is it more oriented toward um, motorized transportation? It's it's not isolated to just motorized transportation, but the scoring index really is a technical review of the condition of the asphalt itself um, and its ability to um, 
you know, like, is it a subgrade problem? Is it the surface problem? You know, so it's an evaluation of what that pavement condition is and what rating it might have for its life cycle. So um, to answer your question, I think the rating that's established, uh, hopefully I'm answering it, the rating that's established um, greater than 70 would be a good rating for various modes of bicycle or some kind of wheeled device that people need to use to uh, get to and from a car or across the road, something like that. Um, so it it considers the use, the, the end user as more than just vehicles. Um, and your response made me think of uh, a, a comment that I had just regarding Patrick's um, question about or observation about the sort of maybe a disconnect between the transportation benefit district um, vehicle licensing fee and maintenance. And um, I was thinking that, you know, there is sort of an indirect tie, right? Because if you're um, improving ways that people can get places out, not in big heavy vehicles, then you're not having to spend as much on maintaining roads. Um, so I, I kind of feel like there's maybe a little bit of an indirect um, thing there, but my other question was, um, I think if you go back a slide, I, I wanted to, um, I when I was reading the memo earlier, I was trying to, uh, I think it's one more, it's the 100th Avenue. Mm -hmm. um, I was trying to, I think you explained the, what that first line there about the 3 million in federal condition. So does that mean we, had a grant for that three million, and we we lost it because we couldn't get the project done in time. No, that's um, you, partially. Uh, the one hundredth Avenue roadway project. So we had a grant, and the grant was federal specifically. And with federal requirements, you need the NEPA approval. Mm -hmm. um, and so, as part of the NEPA approval. Um, EPA and um, fisheries needs to approve your project for uh, before you can advertise and construct the project. So it turns out that in December of 2021, a new study was released that um, shows that debris coming off tires. Uh, can cause, that gets into the storm system, can cause acute morbidity in salmon fish. That compound that's in the tires is 6-PPD quinone, and that's the chemical that we need to treat. The problem that we have with 100 or had with 100th is that the best management practices to treat that chemical are not known. The science today is not known of how to treat that chemical. So it's the, the maintenance of those systems, the construction of the systems, the design of the systems, and the treatment level of those water quality standards are unknown. And so that actually was stalling 100th Avenue. Um, so 100th Avenue's design um, was at the bid ready phase. Uh, waiting approval for the NEPA um, permit for this. 
However, because those standards, and even today, they're still not established, um, we could not seek approval for 100th Avenue. And in lengthy discussions with the state, with ecology, with federal representatives, the timeline is not exactly known for when that approval could be uh, achieved. And so when you compare inflation, uh, you know, this, I'll just round it, $20 million project, 10% uh, deflation a year, or whatever we've been seeing recently, uh, you can equate the number of years delaying the project to the cost of whatever it would be for those grant funds. And so part of the discussion to return the grant funds was really um, one, the achievable standard we 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 don't know what it is for the surface water controls and the cost of delaying the project kind of combined together um i will note that on this particular project we are actually over and above ecology standards and even city of kirkland standards mostly due to how the design can capture the runoff from the roadway so we're doing over and beyond known requirements for the project. It's just because requirements known to, for treating 6PPD quinone are not established, we were in a standstill with the project. So uh, what we had to do was make a decision to um, return the grant funds so that we could keep the project moving along uh, for the public benefit, safety uh, of all modes of transportation. Okay, thank. I really appreciate that detailed explanation. I've been involved in this from the first design discussions advisory group. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so the need an additional four point three five million. It, so that's in twenty twenty three funding. So that's to actually get the project underway, and and council approved that funding. Yeah, well, they, they haven't approved it yet. That's that's coming up in December. Okay, so that's the request to, to yeah. council. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just to yeah. just to wrap up again on the the PCI, because I think one of the things we had a discussion prior in prior meetings too, but the PCI of seventy is just an average, and my, my concern is much more it's 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 a it's a visual quality of life, and you know as a biker too, you know mm -hmm. seventy is is probably got the main throwaways are really good conditions, the shared use in roads with ruts, alligator cracking, and so forth. I think do affect them other modes. So I think it's a, a zero-sum game in terms of like money goes here, it offsets somewhere else. I think this is just a lose-lose proposition, especially if Raphael pointing out, you know, the, the steady state, 100, 100K, 500K for improvements over time. That, that means that we're losing maintenance capabilities and so forth. So that, I think to me, I think what we're, we're reflecting is very much, hey, we're, I think we need to do a little more work on that maintenance story especially as we go out for asking for more money, but the money is not actually going to maintain what we have today on that front. And so uh, to me, again, you know, pick up the garbage, sweep the streets, snow removal, not, not so much here, but, you know, keeping the pavements. I think it's just quality of life issue. I, I know when the, when the road's bad, I know the bike lane's not very good either. Yeah, and just uh, one point uh, to make here, uh, this, the funding levels that you see are for the capital improvement aspect of things. Uh, funds for the maintenance of the assets um, are actually coming out of a different bucket and being 
um, completed with largely maintenance crews. Um, even though the preservation program is a capital project itself to do that, um, there we, in addition to that, we do have maintenance related work that our crews do on the streets. So um, just to complete the picture, uh, you're absolutely right that holding a constant funding level uh, loses your buying power over time. Uh, in this case specifically, it is for the capital investment. Okay, thanks, Rod. Um, other questions along those lines? I know we're kind of keeping up on our time here. So, anything else? We're good All right. Thanks, Rod. Thanks, Kevin. Great presentation. Oh, thank you guys. I always enjoy coming to see you guys. Um, feel free to uh, ask any questions. Uh, we'll make sure that we can kind of circle back on those few questions that we have notes on. And um, thanks again. Thanks, all. All right. Okay. Well, moving along now, we've got this new topic here that we're going to you're all about the Lake Washington Boulevard promenade analysis and concept development. And I understand that there's a, there's a lot of information here that's gonna be presented and um, that you're looking for feedback on um, the different options that are being explored for um, the promenade and then also evaluation criteria. Um, so do we have, oh, good. Hi, Victoria, Victoria Kovacs. And um, thank you. Yeah. And Brent Chuck. Yeah, good evening. Right. <laughs> good evening, commissioners. I'm Victoria Kovacs, a transportation planner in the Public Works Department. Um, and with me is Brett Schock from Transpo Group. Uh, I'm just going to give a quick preamble that was also in your packet, just to give you kind of the background and purpose for this design study. Um, as you know, Lake Washington Boulevard is a key multimodal corridor for the city connects to 520 vehicle lanes. It's part of the Lake Washington Loop for regional bicycling and local trips. It's a beloved corridor for people walking on lunch breaks or people who live in the corridor. Um, so it really is a, a key well-used corridor. And it has been noted in the 2015 transportation master plan specifically to look at a study um, as a promenade and recently that idea was resurfaced with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you know, we were looking at social distancing, people were visiting the parks a lot more often. And um, this council did unanimously support a pilot project to close parking along one side of Lake Washington Boulevard to allow that added walking and biking space. Um, however, the city ultimately didn't pursue that project uh, just because of the costs of doing the temporary pilot project. The, the barricades were cut a lot and the mobilization was a lot. Um, and instead, council said, well, we really need to understand kind of the use and the needs of the corridor a little bit more to understand a more long-term decision. So as part of that, there was a two-part process that was um, proposed and approved. The first part was a multimodal data collection and analysis. And that report was completed last year in December. And I included that final report as part of your packet, um, which showed kind of the parking utilization along the corridor, um, the, the bike use. 
And um, that found that parking could be removed uh, potentially on one side at the worst capacity on adjacent side streets. Um, and then kind of the second part of that, the two-part process was to do a design study, um, see what are the design options. So this is really the second part of that two-part process building off of the findings in the study. Um, and we're lucky that Transpo did complete um, the first part of that study and they're doing the second part of the study. So it's a nice uh, continuation of the work. Um, so with that, I'll hand it off to Brett and he'll kind of walk through the, the work so far on the project. And um, as you noted, Kurt, there's a couple different things we'd like your feedback on. I think um, most critically on the, the different um, cross-section alternatives because moving forward from here, we're really going to develop those evaluation criteria and really lay it out into corridor design alternatives. And then we'll plan to come back to you all um, in your December meeting uh, to really finalize those alternatives before we present uh, to council in the spring. So with that, Brett, please take it away. Okay, great. Well, um, while I get the screen share going here, uh, as Victoria said, my name is Brett Schock. I'm with Transpo Group. Um, senior project manager um, and helping out with uh, the Lake Washington Boulevard promenade project. Um, make sure everyone can see presentation. Okay. Um, and I will state, uh, although I will refer to it as Lake Washington Boulevard, it is Lake Street technically at the north end. So uh, our project corridor uh, initially was from Second uh, Second Ave all the way down to uh, the intersection um, with Lakeway uh, and the signal there. So I'll just refer to it as Lake Washington for for ease here. So um, outline of tonight's presentation: uh, Victoria already went over the project need and purpose, uh, and then I've got four sections to my presentation, uh, and I'll pause for some Q and A and some feedback at the end of each section. Uh, first is uh, our first task was looking at the existing conditions that are out there today and you know how that might um, feed into developing the promenade uh, concepts. I'll go over some of the um, design options that we have. Uh, you know, we, we've looked at a pretty wide range of section alternatives, but uh, they kind of fall into five categories that, that I'll highlight. And then I'll show you one of our uh, full length uh, design options that kind of mixes and matches the different sections uh, based on context. Uh, as was noted, that there was a lot of evaluation criteria that were presented in the report uh, before the meeting tonight. Uh, I'll go over those at a high level, just kind of what the categories are, and then we'll take some uh, some feedback there. And then uh, with the elimination of one of the on-street parking lanes, uh, obviously management of the remaining parking and other parking in the area is going to be uh, even more important. So uh, just going to present some high-level ideas uh, for potential parking management. Uh, and then Victoria has a little info on some uh, some upcoming efforts um, to that end as well. And then we'll uh, pause for some Q&A again at the end. So uh, diving into the first section here, uh, understanding the existing conditions uh, on Lake Washington Boulevard in the project corridor was obviously critical to um, you know getting a better understanding of the the need for the project and um, you know how to best uh, utilize the existing assets and create the promenade that um, you know that you're looking for. So this was a combination of site visits. Um, we did a couple during the daytime, one at night to look at the illumination condition. Uh, city provided us, Victoria gave us a lot of great uh, GIS data. Uh, you can see some of that mapped here, uh, where different um, features are out there today. And then obviously, uh, you know, Ariel and Google Street View are um, invaluable in these types of <laughs> things, you know, when you just need to know what's going on at a certain place and can't hop over there right away. So. 
Um, so I've just got a few slides here, just some pictures from the corridor, uh, just to go over the existing conditions. Uh, you know, one of the uh, first existing conditions I'll talk about is who's actually using the corridor today. Um, you know, it's a wide range of folks of all ages, uh, abilities and comfort levels, whether they're on foot or whether they're on bikes. Um, you have people walking for recreation, um, you have runners out there, you have um, people with strollers, people with pets, uh, runners with strollers, uh, you know, and so there's uh, sidewalks on both sides, but, you know, it, it's a very active, crowded place, uh, you know, for good reason. It, it's, it's a great place to be. Um, you've got the multiple parks. So, um, and then, you know, for the cyclists, it's the Lake Washington Loop, uh, you know, so you have a lot of people on bikes that are, um, you know, at, at various ranges of, uh, abilities and comfort levels there as well. Uh, you know, you have people that are, are going at fairly high speed that, you know, are, are training and, uh, you also have people that are just, you know, taking a, a leisurely bike, uh, to the park or to downtown. The existing section, uh, consists of two lanes, one in each direction, uh, with a striped bike lane in each direction. And then at the curb line, uh, there is an on-street parking lane. Uh, this section generally holds throughout the entire, um, corridor. Once you get down near Houghton Beach Park at about, I believe it's 59th, um, you do lose the parking uh, and in favor of a two-way left turn lane. Uh, and then that approaches the signal at uh, at Lakeway, uh, where there are multiple lanes, um, which we are holding that configuration at the signal. And I'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, there are some damaged sidewalk panels. Uh, you know, trees have caused some uplift in the area. There's been construction that has damaged some of the curbs and sidewalks. Uh, and that's created some mobility concerns. So just something that we're looking to um, you know, note and possibly address uh, through this project. And then there's street trees uh, in various configurations up and down uh, the corridor. Um, you have a, a number of trees that are on the, uh, the curb line in, in tree wells of various sizes. You, know, you can see the ones on the right there are on fairly small tree wells. Uh, you know, and that's where you're getting some of your uplift. On the left, uh, in the background, you can actually see a couple of trees that are uh, in very tiny wells. They almost look like they're just right in the sidewalk itself. So um, you have trees in both sides, and you know that's certainly something that we want to consider because these are very mature trees. They provide a lot of the um, the aesthetic in the corridor. So um, you know we, we don't necessarily want to um, affect that if if there are better options. Um, the city's asked uh, Transpo to consider everything basically within the existing right of way, um, but I did want to point out that you know that kind of varies on the west side. Um, you know, the staff uh, and reported that this is basically because of changing development requirements over the years. Uh, there's been different dedications required as as residential properties have been built. Uh, so you can see here, even though you know we're, we're standing looking south at about fifth right now, um, the back of the sidewalk kind of indicating the back of the right of way is at two very different lines. Um, you know, so we are not looking to expand the right of way with these concepts. These are all looking to stay uh, within the existing um, fairly consistent 60 foot right of way that's out there right now. And then there's various land uses in the corridor. Uh, certainly a lot of residential. Uh, there are single family houses, there's multifamily houses. Um, I believe there's a couple of duplexes even, uh, and that's on both sides of the street, uh, both on the west and the east side. But there's also commercial uses, uh, you know, especially on the south end. Um, the building you see on the right is right across from Houghton Beach Park. Um, there's Ivar's, there's a couple other restaurants uh, in the area. There's a little grocery store. Um, so yeah, a diverse uh, range of land uses uh, in addition to the parks. 
with all the residences on the corridor, uh, you know, there's a lot of what I'm calling residential support uh, need for this road to, to function as well. Uh, garbage pickup, you know, that there's a number of the multifamily places have dumpsters, you know, centralized garbage pickup, but there's also a number that have just cans that need to go out on the curb still uh, and be picked up by garbage trucks. Uh, and this will need to continue no matter what we do uh, with the section. Uh, there's also mail delivery. Uh, you can see on the right there in the background, there's a um, a mailbox, a combined mailbox for a couple of properties. And you know, while this is certainly outside of the reach today of of a mail truck, they can't just park on the curb and directly access it. Uh, you know, we need to uh, consider that in our section and how uh, you know mail delivery can continue to be uh, continue to be done to these residences, um, you know, as they are today. And then obviously the city parks are a major driver of a lot of the traffic in this corridor and, um, you know, the desire for the promenade to kind of complement the waterfront access and, um, you know, a lot of the great um, facilities that are already there today. Uh, Settlers Landing is a pocket park up on the north end of the corridor. And then obviously the recent improvements at uh, David E. Brink Park. And then we've got uh, moving further south, we've got Marsh Park. Uh, pretty much right in the center of our evaluation corridor. And then Houghton Beach Park uh, kind of defines the the southern end uh, of our corridor and, and where we're trying to uh, to get to. Uh, as you know, we're, we're as Joel put it, uh, you know, we have to cut this off somewhere. So <laughs> our, our end point is is the um the, the lakeway signal. Uh, so Houghton Beach Park is kind of a, a logical termini. And then uh, you know, there's a number of existing crosswalks in the uh, in the corridor at, at the cross streets. Uh, many of them are marked, uh, but we have different treatments out there. Uh, you know, this one you see on the left at 10th is marked and signed and has the flags, but does not have any pedestrian activated beacon. Whereas at 7th, um, you know, there's similar treatments, but there is an RFB um, uh, with the solar panels. So, uh, you know, looking at where different uh, beacon treatments or enhancements might be warranted, um, you know, and kind of standardizing this throughout the corridor is part of what we're looking at. Uh, you know, that standardization is good for um, pedestrian comfort uh, and safety, but also driver uh, expectations. You know, that they, it's easier to know, like, okay, you know, I'm looking for the the flashers at every signal, um, you know, and that just helps to to raise awareness of pedestrians that are in those crossings. Uh, obviously, on-street parking is going to be a major consideration. Uh, the existing parking is in those two lanes uh, that are at the curb line. Uh, you can see here a picture that's kind of typical of, of the parking use. You know, our, our previous study that uh, Victoria referenced that was completed in December of last year uh, indicated that the parking use is typically between 40 and 50 percent uh, in terms of the total linear available spaces uh, within the design corridor. Um, you know, there's a lot of parking also available on the side streets. Uh, this is just looking at Northeast 63rd Street earlier this week. Um, you know, obviously those residents also want to park there, but uh, you know, this is only a a few short steps from from the parks and from everything on the waterfront. And if we make those crossings uh, inviting and you know a nice facility, a nice promenade, uh, this parking becomes more viable as a replacement for uh, you know whatever is uh, is traded away on Lake Washington Boulevard. And then there's a lot of off-street parking. Uh, it takes various forms uh, with the different residential properties. Uh, we have a couple of uh, carports that are right at the right-of-way line. Uh, you know, people pulling across the sidewalks and uh, directly into their parking places. Uh, we also have a number of driveways for um, you know multi-car uh, garages that are underneath the multifamily um, residences, especially on the um, on the lake side, on the west side. And these driveways come up at a pretty significant angle. Uh, to the to the right of way line and crossing the existing sidewalks uh, before entering the the traffic uh, lanes. So this 
the function of both of these types of parking that we have uh, frequently in addition to um, you know some garages and kind of more standard driveways that are right up against the right-of-way line certainly needs to be taken into account and in making sure that um, you know there's a safe uh, interaction between active modes and those parking. There's also off-street parking uh, available at, uh, at Marsh and Houghton Beach Park. Uh, and then there is off-street parking for a number of the businesses on the south end, uh, some of which is actually shared. Um, this, um, this building on the south end has some signage indicating that outside of business hours, um, you know, it's, it's a public lot uh, that's available for those who are accessing, uh, accessing the parks. And then we've done a lot of work looking at the existing illumination, uh, both daytime and nighttime. Uh, the lights that are out there right now are uh, all vehicle scale. Um, some of them do have uh, shades, preventing the glare from getting into some of the uh, the residences that are, uh, especially you know, multi-story residences that are right up against uh, where these lights are present. Uh, you know, and some of those shades, you know, while they're obviously uh, you know something to address a concern that was expressed, they are kind of affecting how the, the light is actually um, you know lighting up the critical uh, transportation infrastructure. Uh, and you can see on the right there, you know, the nighttime illumination, while this picture, you know, taken with a phone is kind of enhanced uh, to, to grab more light, you can see the shadows that are there. And, um, you know, we've done some existing uh, light levels analysis already uh, to kind of find where those pockets are, uh, that the lighting is not as great. Uh, in addition, I did want to mention on the, the left there, you can see that the light is directly over the crosswalk, and that's really not the, um, you know, the recommended practices anymore. Uh, this can produce a situation where you have um, the pedestrian in the crossing is actually in shadow. Um, so we typically uh, these days try and put that light um, in front of the crossing uh, as the driver is approaching it, uh, just to keep the pedestrian um, better lit for the approaching vehicle. Another part of our existing conditions that we looked at is the uh, the crash data. So we looked at five years worth of uh, crash data, and what was pretty obvious in looking at the the numbers and the risk factors uh, is that there were a lot of crashes with pedestrians that happened uh, when the streetlights were either on or in dusk when the streetlights had not yet come on. Um, and a lot of those crashes were happening in the crosswalks. Was just um, you know reinforces the need to take a look at the lighting around these crosswalks and the uh, the enhancement of them. Uh, there were also a number of crashes with bikes that occurred because of the cross street turns. Um, you know, I took this picture just to demonstrate that, you know, we have the northbound uh, bike lane uh, with the green markings across each of the, the cross streets, but uh, I believe it was 12 bike crashes that occurred. And of those 12, uh, eight were related to uh, either left turns off of Lake Washington Boulevard onto one of these cross streets uh, or right turns uh, or also cross street traffic turning onto Lake Washington Boulevard. So obviously, um, you know, visibility of, of those in this northbound bike lane uh, is a concern uh, based on the crash data. And then the bike facilities themselves, there were a number of uh, those bike crashes that were also cited that the cyclist was outside of the, um, the traveled way, it was termed. Uh, so that could be bikes using the on-street parking lanes uh, or using the sidewalks and, um, you know, having issues with, with visibility that lead to crashes. And then the city of Kirkland has a local road safety plan, um, you know, that's been used to, to good effect uh, to receive funding through the, the WashDOT uh, Highway Safety Program. Uh, but the safety plan also highlights that, you know, the number one risk factor to, to mitigate severe crashes in the city, uh, you know, one of the highest ones is looking at uh, active mode crashes, you know, obviously with the vulnerability of those who are not within a vehicle. Uh, it's really important. And uh, one of the segments of Lake Washington Boulevard is actually in the tier one uh, priorities 
uh, for projects that are identified in the local road safety plan um, for the city. And then Victoria did uh, pass along a number of citizen requests uh, that have been made in the corridor in the last couple of years. Uh, you know, in addition to uh, you know what she passed along in the um, in the intro there, uh, we've had or the city's received several vegetation related concerns, whether that's overgrowth or just the fact that um, you know the trees have caused damage to the sidewalk that I showed earlier. Uh, with the uplift that makes it a little harder for those with mobility challenges, um, or even just you know runners, uh, you know it's easy to to, to trip an ankle uh, over one of these uplifted sidewalk panels. Uh, and then crosswalk protection was something that was really high on the uh, the number of requests and, um, you know, adding our RFBs, changing the lighting. Uh, and I think just, you know, we want to standardize the approach uh, so that it's something that everyone feels safe to use those crosswalks, uh, especially if we're going to be, um, you know, shifting some of the parking across the street. So uh, that's the end of uh, you know, the first section here on existing conditions. If you have any feedback on what we found, um, you know, if there's anything that you feel that we uh, we didn't. Uh, quite capture. Uh, I'd be curious to hear your feedback. Uh, this is Faith. Thanks for that presentation. Um, I was curious, so you mentioned on the uh, bike incidents, uh, collisions, were there any with um, the parking lane being, the, the bike lane being a buffer between the moving traffic and the parking traffic? I, I myself have had quite a number of close calls and witnessed a lot of close calls, but um, ha has that factored into your analysis uh, or observation? Yeah, th there were three crashes that were cited as um, that the cyclist was outside of the traveled way. Um, you know, that's obviously up to a little bit of interpretation by the, the reporting officer, what that means. Um, but, you know, my interpretation of that was that the, the cyclist was in, in the parking lane um, when that crash occurred. I, I guess I mean when cars are pulling in and out of parking or they're opening their car doors. Oh, the, the dooring threat. Not, not what the cyclist is doing, but what the driver is doing. Yeah, reading through the report, um, there were a couple dooring incidents, but I think probably a lot more of those are unreported. Um, so it is like a limited data set we're working with. And as Brett mentioned, it is kind of subjective, um, kind of what the officer does write down. So it could be a little bit different, but yeah, certainly something we've thought about. I also wanted to to uh, mention the uh, having the bikes between the road and the parking. That to me, it seems like uh, if those were flipped, that that would be infinitely more comfortable as a bicyclist uh, and also would probably remove the risk of the bicyclist being quote out of the traveled way by making it so that they're further from moving traffic because I moving into an empty space there to get further from cars just is seems to be a normal operating habit like when i when i see bicyclists that's almost always trying to get away as far from the cars as possible and having that parking there is forcing them up closer to the cars yeah well i will say you will enjoy the next section so stay tuned <laughs> awesome right yeah um so 
you had some good information on the existing conditions and kind of the, especially the differential in right-of-way. Looking ahead when we're kind of calling it an average of a 60-foot right-of-way width, do you know what the true minimum width is? Like what would be our bottleneck right-of-way width along the full corridor? Is it 60 um, feet or is it a little bit smaller? We did not pull any sort of survey grade, but just looking at it in the, the publicly available information, I did not find anywhere that it was smaller than 60. Okay, there was actually you. a few places where it widened as much as 70, but yeah, I didn't find anywhere smaller than 60. Uh, okay. Hey, I really love the, the graphics, the different options and things that you're considering. But one thing that confused me was the terminides themselves. So, you know, you, we, how do we get the bikers? I, I think some of these cross sections are options that have the, the bike lanes together on one side of the street. But I, I couldn't envision what, what happens at the end there. Do you, you know, does the traffic, you know, the biker have to go across the crosswalk to get, for me um, as, as a parent, it's fine to be in the corridor, but when I'm biking, make a loop around the area, I, I, it's kind of hard to envision how those that transitions made for a biker. Yeah. Um, I will say again, stay tuned. <laughs> it's coming. Yeah. So, and then in, in our my, next section. And my other comment on that is also just, uh, you know, maintenance, you know, you have, you have these, um, yeah, I think one of them had posts, you know, those pillar, you no, know, those pylons and so forth, but you know, street, you know, sweeping maintenance activities and so forth, you know, I'm having a hard time how some of these things are maintainable. Right. right. Yeah. Again, that, that's, that's coming up. So um, I, I think I'm going to move into the sections because um, I think we're, we're generating some questions oh, on okay. the sections here. So I, I, oh, I want to step ahead. Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. All right. So, so looking at the sections and, you know, the way that we can develop the, the, the promenade, um, I intentionally fuzzed this out. That's not your screen or your eyes. Um, <laughs> uh, so this is just to show, you know, we looked at a very wide range of different feasible options. Um, you know, this was to, um, you know, just make sure that, that we didn't not think of something. Um, you know, we presented this to the, to our, um, you know, our, our partners with the city, uh, for their feedback, uh, for anything that, you know, didn't work from a maintenance perspective or just from, a um, you know, preferences um, for what they would like to see. And, um, you know, from this wide range of different cross-section options, we're um, looking to select those that kind of best meet the project goals. Uh, and we're also going to apply those, uh, you know, in context. We're not necessarily looking for one section that applies the whole way down, although I'll get to that in a second that we, uh, you know, that is an option. Um, you know, I think that we're going to have some changes back and forth, and there's reasons that I'll get into as to why we would do that. So the first section that I want to highlight uh, or, or, you know, category of sections uh, would be just a very wide multi-use path. Um, you know, I think that this is maybe the, the easiest is that we, we have enough room out there that, you know, taking the one parking lane and especially if you take the bike lanes and put them up on some sort of a multi-use path or shared path, you can get more than 25 feet, uh, as much as 27 feet, um, keeping the east uh, curb line. Uh, you know, and just have this go the whole way down, uh, you know, all the way to, to Houghton Beach Park. Uh, certainly a very wide facility that would accommodate all those active modes, um, you know, any number of runners and cyclists, but obviously you have some mixing traffic, which with the higher confidence, higher speed cyclists can be a little bit of a concern. Um, you know, but with this really wide space, you have a lot of opportunities for streetscaping, uh, different types of lighting, um, you know, but this would be something that is going to significantly affect a lot of the street trees that are out there. Any of those that are at the current uh, curb line would probably have to be relocated. 
Um, you know, and obviously that means cutting down a mature tree and putting in one that's, uh, you know, new, but maybe more, um, size to the corridor uh, so that it won't have as much impact on lighting or, uh, you know, uplift of the sidewalk in the future. Um, you know, but obviously this is going to be the highest cost. Uh, you're talking about a, a pretty wide raft of concrete over a large distance, uh, you know, and that might affect uh, the timing of being able to implement something like this for the promenade. Um, you know, and then there's the impact on existing facilities, not just the trees, uh, you know, and the existing sidewalks coming out, but, um, you know, a lot of those residential support services would end up needing to be, um, you know, people would have to take their trash out to the edge and there'd have to be, uh, you know, some consideration for where those get placed. There's a lot more distance to the, uh, to the mailboxes. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stormwater concerns in this corridor. Um, the city's had some issues with a, a, a couple of uh, pieces of the stormwater system that are not functioning um, the way they'd like. Uh, so, you know, this section may, um, you know, provide some opportunities to fix that, but at the same time, it may also complicate those situations. So, um, you know, obviously this is one that's, you know, kind of, you know, maybe on the, the, the gold plated side, if you will. Um, so looking at different ways that um, we could implement a simpler, similar um, ethos of having this promenade and, uh, you know, kind of combining all of the, the active mode uses in, in one space um, would be to actually relocate the parking to the west side um, you know, rather than the east side. And then putting the bike lanes, you know, as was mentioned, behind the parking. Uh, so this would have uh, a two-way bike facility with a three and a half foot buffer for dooring uh, next to the parking lane. And then both of the drive lanes would be pushed uh, to the east curb. So the parking lane, uh, as was mentioned earlier, uh, you know, acts as an additional buffer space. Uh, you do have the separation between bikes and pedestrians. Uh, so cyclists kind of get their own facility. Um, you do potentially have a dooring threat, but you do have three and a half feet of you know, designated buffer space the way that we're looking at it. Um, and this is keeping the existing curbs exactly where they are. So you can get that three and a half feet while still providing, um, you know, about 13 feet for that two-way bike facility. Um, but one thing to note about this west side parking is that it does likely result in a lower number of total on-street parking spaces. Um, because you have those large carport areas and you have a number of driveways um, on that west side, um, there is just less total space that is legally open for parking um, as compared to keeping the parking on the east side. So that's something to consider. If we're taking away one of the parking lanes, you know, do we keep something that has about a 50% reduction or are we looking at about a 75% reduction in parking? So this section flips it, flips the parking back to the east side where we have a little bit more um, you know, availability. Uh, but maintains that separation for bikes and pedestrians. Um, you know, there's two ways that we could do this. There's an at grade that I'm not showing right now that, as was mentioned, you could have a physical um, barrier in there. Um, the, the flex post that you saw, uh, which you correctly uh, pointed out, you know, can be a maintenance nightmare uh, if they get clipped during um, you know, street sweeping or snow removal operations. But um, you know, that's just really what this program puts in place. Um, that could be planter uh, boxes that could be, there's different products that, um, you know, screw directly down into the pavement um, that provide that physical separation that aren't just the flex posts that have a little bit more aesthetic treatment to them. Um, but this one here is actually showing an option where we would raise the bike facility up to the level of the sidewalk. Uh, so that would allow us to relocate the existing curb out a little bit. Um, you know, we might be able to keep those street trees in, that are along the curb line uh, and just have a wider bike facility where those street trees are. Um, you know, raising the bike uh, up to the, the sidewalk level, you would want to have some sort of a differential in pavement or, um, you know, combined with a, a visual and tactile uh, strip that, that would help folks with, um, 
you know, site impairments to, to make sure that they're not walking into the bike facility. Um, but again, this provides a little bit of separation so that especially, you know, those, those more confident and higher speed cyclists are not uh, mixing in with those, um, you know, walking their dog or with smaller kids or the strollers. Uh, and then another thing to consider with this section, again, is the impact to those residential support services. So another concept, uh, you know, to kind of, again, keeping that separation and looking at the ways that we can make that buffer space uh, would be a, an actual full scale median uh, between the bike lanes, uh, whether they are at the roadway level or at the sidewalk level and the travel lanes. Um, this median would provide some opportunity for additional aesthetic treatments, uh, whether that's planted or, um, you know, there could even be hardscape with some public art, um, you know, but that's going to be another high maintenance um, thing. It, it could be a great place for some LID and for some, uh, you know, treatment of stormwater, but at the same time, you know, that's more plants that need to be maintained. That's more plants that need to be established. If you have street trees, you're potentially having, you know, root uplift on, on both sides um, as well, you know, with these, um, median separated bike lanes, it can create kind of a flume effect uh, for, for the bike lanes, whether that's for stormwater or just for um, you know debris and especially leaves uh, as we get into autumn and in theory, it cools down. Um, you know, so you would need to have some sweeping happening um, you know, if you did have this at, uh, at street grade. And then finally, our last category is, uh, you know, maybe the simplest modification from what's out there. And that's taking one of those existing parking lanes and just converting it to um, to buffer space for the bike lanes. Uh, and then as was mentioned, pushing the bike lanes out to the curb rather than having the parking at the curb. Uh, so this kind of brings all of the vehicle uses to the center, uh, provides a, a buffer space for either dooring on the one side, um, you know, and having some sort of physical barrier on the other uh, to the travel lane, and then still maintaining those bike lanes one in each direction, just a one-way bike facility, and then keeping the sidewalks on both sides uh, as they are today. So, you know, this is certainly an option that's, it's a little bit more limited in its, you know, creation of a promenade of sorts, but uh, it certainly gets to the point that, uh, you know, AJ raised about, you know, wh where the bikes are positioned could probably be improved, um, both for how people of a lower confidence, uh, you know, are maybe using it today, but also just to provide that physical space so that you don't have those uh, during risks. And then, uh, okay, so I have a roll plot that I want to show here, and I'm actually going to stop the share for a second while I switch screens, because I just want to show you how we're thinking of um, putting this all together. So um, I realize this is a very small scale on your, <laughs> on your screens right now, but I will zoom in here. Um, you know, but this just shows, you know, we are applying the different sections in different areas. We have, you know, some very distinct uh, changes in land use, whether it's, you know, at the northern side, we have a lot of street trees and a lot of residences, you know, especially with those very short driveways, that carport you saw earlier, uh, I believe is right in front of this white building right here. Um, you know, as you get down towards Fifth Avenue, it changes a little bit because you've got the park frontage uh, and you really don't have any street trees. Uh, you transition back to an area with a lot of multifamily and the street trees come back. Um, once you get south of 10th, you know, you have another potential change in section. You have some smaller um, single family residences with, again, those short driveways and the carports. Um, another change in section in front of the park, uh, in front of Marsh Park, um, some commercial properties. And then as you get to the south end at Houghton Beach, um, you know, you kind of have that clear frontage again. So, um, you know, this concept just shows the way that the lanes would uh, fall today. You can see that the darker colors on here are the existing sidewalks. And then um, this hatching indicates the parking lane. And then you've got the existing, or I'm sorry, the, the, the future lanes 
um, one northbound, one southbound, a buffer space, and then where the two-way cycle track would lay. Um, and then this darker is just an area where there's street trees today, and then the sidewalk would be preserved. So to the question about what happens on the north end, um, you know, that's an excellent point. If we terminate this promenade concept at second, we would look to provide some sort of a, um, you know, a green and white multimodal crossing here, uh, probably protected with an RFB that would get those northbound cyclists back on, um, you know, on the northbound side, uh, sharing the lane. But, uh, you know, in looking at how this actually would function for those cyclists uh, and, and some of the future projects, uh, especially with the pedestrian scramble coming uh, in the future at, at the Kirkland Avenue intersection, um, you know, while it may be a little bit of a, a hot topic in terms of the impact of parking, extending this two-way facility all the way to Kirkland Avenue actually, you know, would provide a lot of protection and make a lot of connection sense for those using active modes. Um, you know, even those on the Lake Washington Loop, if they're continuing further north, you know, going through the marina rather than sharing the lane and coming through Central Way and the signals and everything, it's just a more comfortable um, a more comfortable routing, um, you know, if someone is going in a different direction, having the pedestrian scramble available to them, you know, whether they're walking or on a bike, uh, you know, would be a, a, a good thing to consider. Uh, so, you know, this is one of the recommendations that I think we're going to carry forward because, you know, otherwise we're, we're just talking about extending some sharrows uh, to Kirkland Avenue and then having folks uh, distribute from there. A couple other highlights that I wanted to show on this. Uh, and again, this is just in draft mode. You know, we haven't finalized all of, you know, how this looks in terms of transitions and everything. Um, you know, with the parking lane on the east side, that does give us an opportunity to provide a curb extension uh, at these crossings. So combining that curb extension with the bike facility, uh, which is not, you know, obviously exposed to a travel lane, it's still a, a crossing uh, of sorts for a pedestrian, but it's not, um, you know, crossing a, a roadway. You actually limit the entire exposure to traffic to only about 20 feet, uh, which is a pretty good, um, uh, improvement over what's out there today in terms of how much pedestrians are exposed to to travel lanes when they're crossing, uh, in addition to giving a little bit more space for people to, um, you know, to before they start their crossing operation and to be seen by oncoming traffic, uh, which is certainly a consideration, uh, you know, today with the on-street parking that could potentially block visibility of a pedestrian um, you know, waiting to cross. Uh, moving further south, um, you know, again, the, the improvements to each crossing, uh, that we're proposing and, you know, some of the changes. I think what we're showing here at the um, the residences, so this block here, um, just south of 10th Avenue, where we have the more single-family residences, and up at the north um, north end, where we had that, you know, the, the carport that I referenced. Um, you know, we think that even if the option that's chosen is to keep things, uh, you know, at roadway grade, so that we're not um, really having to do a whole lot of construction in between the curbs, it might be advantageous to raise um, that facility in front of those residences. Um, just because, you know, with those very short driveways, making it so that it's, um, you know, if you're coming out of that driveway, you're navigating the sidewalk and then the bike facility, and then you're out into the roadway rather than kind of combining everything into one movement. Um, you know, that people are looking for, you know, is someone walking from either direction? Is someone biking from either direction? Is traffic coming? Um, you know, the, the more you can kind of isolate those decision points uh, for drivers, the less. Uh, risk there is um, of a crash. So again, you know, we um, you know are, are looking at applying these sections, you know, in context, uh, and then once we get to the south end, uh, you know, transitioning 
out of this uh, two-way bike facility. Uh, you know, we looked at it as Houghton Beach Park being a good uh, logical termini for this facility. Uh, you know, by the time you get to that park, most of your families have probably gotten uh, you know where they're trying to get to. And since um, you know we're, we're not doing anything south of the signal at Lakeway, and we're actually keeping um, the bike lanes on either side as it is today, uh, we felt that this was a good opportunity to have uh, you know a multimodal crossing at this point. Uh, which is really serving the northbound cyclist. That's really who needs to be crossing here. Um, and having some sort of treatment that kind of reinforces that, you know, if you are a lower confidence cyclist and want to use the two-way facility, you would kind of hop up on this crossing and, you know, use the RFB. Whereas, you know, if you wanted to just take the lane and keep going, you have that option, um, you know, and that's available to you. And then the two-way left turn lane develops uh, to provide the access to the different businesses. And then, um, you have your turn lane uh, as you approach the signal at Lakeview. So, um, yeah, so that's just kind of the overview of our sections, kind of the reasoning behind each of them and, and what we're thinking. And then just a little preview of how we're applying them, uh, you know, in context. And our three options that we're going to present in December, uh, you know, with a more detailed analysis are going to be basically three versions of what you're seeing here, this kind of strip map with the different sections applied in different areas. So, Stop the share for a second and switch back to my presentation. Um, and I was going to have uh, you know another pause here for um, for feedback on the sections themselves, uh, if you wanted to to discuss that. You bet. <laughs> this would be the big section. Uh, everybody. Um, I, these are, are really great. I love what you've come up with here. Um, I think uh, one thing that I was uh, thinking about is the, you mentioned uh, mail delivery, but just delivery vehicles in, in general, and then also thinking about um, maintenance. And so in addition to just sort of the general vision of this being a promenade and sort of the, you know, having a nice wide space for active modes all together instead of split. I think the benefit there is of, of having like the bikeway, two-way bikeway on one side is um, that that could allow space for um, sweep, sweepers to fit in that two-way bikeway. And then also um, in that buffer space, um, I, I think there, it should either be the bikeway should either be at grade level or have a very defined buffer to prevent delivery vehicles from entering in that space or people parking from entering into that space. Um, so I strongly would advocate for having something more than just paint as a buffer. Ryan. Yeah, um, kind of one quick question just for context here. I know one of the asks of the commission is to provide input on the evaluation criteria. Will, knowing that you, you kind of summarize that there's gonna be three cohesive options that are gonna be developed, will the criteria be structured on the sections individually or on the cohesive three options that are developed, which may comprise a variety of cross sections? The idea is to apply the, uh, the criteria to those cohesive options. Okay. Yeah. Each one is going to essentially use a different category. We're going to do one with that West side parking, and then we're going to do 
um, you know, maybe two versions that use the east side parking. Okay, that's that's helpful to know. Um, just kind of some quick just comments that I had so far um, uh, are that I appreciate some of the, the variety here. Um, I especially liked some of the visuals that were in the packet that color coded um, with so many sections, it was easy to spot what was where within the sections, what made them unique. Um, I, I think that having the, the two-way bike facility included as one of the core options is really good to have that on the west side and the parking on the, the northbound side, the east side, um, just to help kind of reduce some of the conflict zones was good. One thing that I caught while you were going through um, your summary was um, having elevated or sidewalk level cycle tracks. Um, but I think the sections, depending on the width that's there, there might not be enough width to transition from roadway grade up to that elevated six inch height, um, depending on the buffers, the sections themselves based on the 60 foot right, right of a width have about three feet or so to make that transition, um, which typically would be too steep and might have some cars scraping. Um, but if there's more right-of-way width in some of those areas where we have a lot of those driveway accesses, maybe that will work out okay. Um, but just kind of a consideration in how we we look at that with the property access points. Otherwise, we're kind of roller coastering the the sidewalk and the the bike lane cycle track um, portion there. Um, and then one other kind of just broad question here, because it factors in design-wise throughout the whole corridor. Um, has there been any talk further on changing the posted speed, which is typically 30 miles an hour in this full corridor, and reducing that down to 25? Um, Victoria? <laughs> yeah, it, I think it's 25 from about 7th Street North, and then um, there's a shift where it does change to 30 miles an hour. That is certainly something we're looking at, and the city is looking at changing our speed limit policy citywide because um, right now as you know it's a bit of an onerous process where we present to you and then present to council and it gets approved um, so definitely and I think recommendations out of this study could help be a quick win as an outcome of this project for sure. Okay. Yeah I know kind of considering how things may, may be designed how certain sections are looked at in certain cases, especially around driveways or around intersections themselves. If drivers are traveling at a slower speed, then they have a shorter stopping site distance. It'll help not only improve safety, but it will also probably help on the design elements as well significantly. So just some thoughts there. Thank you. Uh, I think let's go with AJ first because she's been uh, I wanted to uh, also comment on in terms of having there be uh, having the bike lanes and such be uh, raised or even just having something there as a, uh, a divider, uh, something maybe like the tree line there or uh, some something to deter vehicles from trying to get into that area especially in that i've seen recently delivery vehicles uh that have driven up onto sidewalks and parked on sidewalks a lot recently uh so something to deter that so that the the uh 
bike or pedestrian areas don't get blocked. Uh, not quite sure how to finish that statement. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah. So, well, it's hard to say what's the right trade off, but it's probably around C3 plus minus some enhancements. Um, I did want to point out that I think. Uh, I would anticipate some discussion and, and perhaps some public engagement around the loss of parking. Uh, I think you've correctly identified that, you know, keeping parking on the east versus the west uh, minimizes the loss of parking in that corridor. I also remember previous presentations around the corridor suggested that parking on the east side is, is not as dense. So it's a loss on the corridor, but there's still plenty of room uh, for current users, et cetera. So I, I just kind of wanted to say there's there's a trade-off being made here. It's the good one because it, it keeps multimodality at the expense of some parking. And that's probably going to be the, the the largest variable to to explain and, and understand what the trade-offs and what the what the spillover effect might be or things things along those lines. Yeah, Patrick. Great. Uh, yeah, my timing was a little off last time I was talking, but um, no, I, I really like some of these, you know, visualizations and options. I'm still having a little hard time on the use cases because part of me is like, okay, we're trying to put the bike lane together on one side. The use case for whom are we trying to cater to families, rollerbladers, and so forth along those lines. I'm trying to figure out what are we trying to do with the with the bike lanes here. Are we trying to make it safer for somebody, or are we trying to encourage more people? To me, you know, if I'm I'm doing my loop around the area, you know, if I'm doing a multi-lane bike use, then I'm kind of actually not as comfortable, right? Because you got rollerbladers, you got little kids walking around. So I'm trying to, and then I got across the street. Uh, and I can understand the, the 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 crosswalk, you know, prioritization stuff like that. But I, I got worried about the speed limit now because I'm on a bike trail instead of being on the surface street. So I'm kind of wondering what are we, who are we trying to cater to, to in the on the in the biking community side of the house. Um, as a parent, I like taking my kids on a little bike ride alone, make a loop, especially when they're younger. I don't see anything like, like how do I accommodate parking, getting people there, unloading their bikes. And we're not doing any kind of, uh, compendum improvements to, in, on the terminals or somewhere along the corridor to, to facilitate some of these, uh, use cases. So I'm, I'm just seeing if there was some more. Instead of focusing on just what the, the cross section looks like, but how, how would people actually use this? Like who what, who are envisioning to attract? And I'm I'm not seeing a clear justification for the bike side of the house and multi-lane use, the multi-path use, you know, that where the rollerbladers are mixing now. I know we're trying to get safety. I think that was one of the drivers, but then um I'm I don't know. I'm I'm just it's not quite all there for me understanding why we're doing this. We're, we're swapping, you know, swapping on one side of the, the bikes to one side of the street. We're not widening the sidewalks necessarily. Just, I'm not I'm kind of confused. Yeah, okay, I can well, chime in here too, if you want to, Brett. But I was going to say the goal is to have an all ages and abilities facility, whereas the existing bike lanes on street are really for more the enthused and confident rider, um, you know, someone who has experience, who knows to look out for car doors, um, you know, con constantly be aware of your surroundings. Whereas if we had more of a promenade, um, you know, it's a more comfortable facility for families, um, for 
riders of any type. So recognizing that there is, that is a strong recreational loop um, for those maybe fearless riders who can take the lane. I think if we had this kind of option, they could still stay in lane with vehicles should they choose, um, or they could use the slower facility with, of course, as you're saying, the trade-off that you have to be slower and watch out for kids on their bikes instead of watching out for car doors. Um, so there's always going to be a, a trade-off. Yeah. Right, did you I think add? The, yeah. I, I think you summarized it well. I mean, our, our design user, when we looked at these sections was, um, you know, the, the family with a, a kid who's, you know, maybe just barely off the, uh, I forget what the, 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 the bike without the pedals. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's just like. barely, yeah. Just barely <laughs> off of that, you know, and, and you know, maybe the, the, the seven or eight year old who kind of knows what they're doing, but you know, like Victoria said, is not necessarily, you know, watching it for, for traffic come from every direction and, you know, kind of doing one of these. And um, I, I think that's our design bike user um, while still acknowledging that, yeah, that, you know, this is the Lake Washington loop. You're going to have people that are bombing through here at a pretty good clip. Um, you know, and I think that's why the, you know, while there are a number of advantages to just the very wide, you know, 27 foot concrete promenade, um, I think that making sure that there is accommodation for those who want to travel this at a higher speed um, on a bike, um, you know, I, I think that that's kind of what what drove looking at these different sections and different ways of doing it, in addition to the fact that it's just going to be really expensive and, um, you know, therefore a longer, longer term project to, to be able to implement it. You know, and that's, and that's okay. Understanding that it makes more sense, but you know, to me again, then what are the, I don't know, kicking kid with bounce bike, being able to find a place to park and, or at least get to the, to the, to the corridor. Uh, if there's some treatments to, to help comedy and understand what it is, what's the impact of the neighboring neighborhoods and blocks. Cause now they're, you're attracting more folks uh, that don't necessarily live in the immediate area. We're not addressing that. So I, I can see where there's could be some pushback from not just lost parking, but you're creating more attraction and trying to attract more of these users, but then there's no combination along those lines. Keith, you want to say? Yeah, a, a couple of things. Um, I liked the uh, comment about the speed limit, the question of, about the speed limit. I think layered on top of that, um, what I would like to see is a designation of the area as a pedestrian zone. Um, I've seen that in Redmond and I want to say it was like maybe Duval I was in the other day that um, they have, you know, designated pedestrian zones um, and really flagging that. Um, and then I was just thinking with a lower speed limit, even your kind of fast and fearless um, riders that want to stay in the lane and not go into the bikeway would at least be facing you know, a, a car lane that has slower traffic. Um, so it's, it's safer. Um, and I think, you know, we, we talked about the extreme cases of fast and fearless riders, which is, you know, maybe 1% of the population. And then you've got maybe your toddling um, bike riders, you know, young families um, is maybe another 5% that would end up there, but there's a big range of the population who we don't see yet that would ride bikes um, that because they don't feel like it's safe. Um, and these are just people, adults who are currently driving that would don't ride because they don't feel safe. You know, I talk to my um, neighbors and friends, community members, and 
they say they're interested in writing, but it doesn't feel safe and it would take a separated protected um, pathway, a bikeway for them to be comfortable. And I would hope that that's what this type of design would accommodate um, uh, the, a, a two-way bikeway separated um, facility. Yeah, but would this be more, I mean, this is only a short stretch, right? I mean, this is not somebody, somebody's had, purposely going here just to bike along this promenade. And so that's, again, I think my question back to you, if those are the folks we're doing, then how are they getting there? Getting there, accommodating them. You know, I know my bike rack is like taking another half a car length because I have four rack. And so I'm just wondering like, you know, what, what, are, what are we doing to, if we are trying to accommodate those users, then what are we doing to get them to the corridor itself and accommodate them, not just the facility itself? Transitions on either end. Transitions or how people get to it. Mm -hmm. and just that overall, what's the overall ex biker experience? Yeah. yeah. AJ. Uh, in, I wanted to say just in terms of, uh, you know, how, how are people getting there and that sort of thing. I do think that there's a significant portion of people that would use something like that as a form of transportation other than or rather than purely recreation uh it that does connect uh or comes close to connecting an area that's uh got some pretty dense housing to a lot of stores uh so I, I think it's, I think a lot of people would be getting there not by bringing their car necessarily to go bike down as a recreational thing, but using it as that sort of transportation path. Thank you, AJ, good points. I, I would add kind of, as we've talked a lot as a commission about, connecting the the north northeast 85th um sub area down to downtown what this promenade project does is it links downtown to the entire park system along the waterfront and yes there's a little bit of maybe opportunity to link all of that together but i think this is a crucial piece of our overall network and, and so it's I'm, I'm really appreciate that we're we're looking at this more closely, and um, kind of for the the purpose of who it's for. Like, as as a dad of one of the kids that is nine with ADHD that is like constantly looking over his shoulder. Like, the, I I totally get the all ages and all abilities, and I think we're that is a good mark to have for the city on this facility. One one thing I'd like to say it's it's also. Uh, Difficult for me to imagine significantly changing the character of the current use of that corridor, right? Like you're improving what people are already doing. Uh, people are already going there on the weekends because of the parks. Uh, people who live there, you know, are already moving about to stores, etc. During the week, you still have commuters. Et like to me, this is like the classic multimodal, you know, corridor that that just kind of has different characters on the holidays and weekends. Uh, and everybody gets to use it a little bit for that. So I would, I would say you're 
your presentation to me sounds like improving what's already there, uh, making it safer, I think, for uh, uh, a wider variety of users that are, that are not protected by cars. Um, I like that part. And again, I, all I have to say is that the trade-off here is parking and spillover. And I think just we just need to explain, you know, yes, we are making that trade-off for safety and move on or whatever it is. But uh, I don't think you're changing the character of the city <laughs> just because you have a better uh, story for, for existing users. I'd just like to add one thing maybe as a evaluation criteria, and that's as you're looking at these role plots as um, signing and transitions between sections and just kind of maybe look at, uh, is there a confusion factor that is being introduced for the users out there as far as going from a two-way cycle track and maybe at some point you have to separate them or I, I'm not sure what you're thinking exactly, but just keep in mind there's transitions and how do you how do you address that? Okay, well, um, if there's nothing else, that could be a good transition to the next section of <laughs> the evaluation criteria. Um, yeah, so uh, we've touched on this a little bit a couple times already, but you know, we would be looking at these criteria. Um, you know, we, we've got them in mind as we're fitting the sections um, in there, but we're, we're going to be applying these to our full-length um, options. Um, you know, to kind of to, to balance them and uh, you know present the pros and cons. Um, so, you know, the, the detailed criteria are, are in your packet. Uh, so this is just kind of the, the overall categories, uh, you know, safety and comfort for a range of users. We touched on that a couple of times, um, you know, amount of physical separation. Some of them certainly have more than others. Uh, and that can be between uh, cars and bikes and people uh, walking. That could be between bikes and people walking. Um, you know, th there's different categories of that physical separation. Uh, implementation, as I mentioned, you know, with the, with the full width one, you know, obviously we want to have something that there's momentum for this now. So we want to try and capture that. And, you know, we, we want to deliver something that can happen in the next couple of years, not like a, you know, 10 year in the future, um, if we can avoid it. Um, although, you know, that could also tie into there's, you know, op opportunities to maybe do this as a pilot. Uh, you know, if it is one of those uh, ones that happens just in between the curbs, um, you know, you could do it as a temporary facility. Um, even for like a week and just let people, you know, see it and react to it. And, um, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with, with those kinds of projects, but you know, that they, they tend to generate a lot of good feedback. Um, you know, not, not necessarily saying it's all positive. Sometimes it is all positive, but it, at least it gets people thinking about it and it's way more real and easier to understand than looking at lines on paper, even if it is, um, you know, pretty graphic. So thank you for the, <laughs> the notes on that. Um, and then the, obviously the impact to the existing development uh, and facilities, whether that's, you know, residences and their driveways, um, you know, the, the number of street trees that are very mature and kind of contribute to the, the whole aesthetic of the corridor. Um, the stormwater, like I mentioned, you know, the, the city has some concerns with, um, you know, the existing facilities and the performance of those and then the, the garbage pickup and the mail and, you know, the, the deliveries as well. I think that's a really good point. Um, the residential support services and then obviously the impact to on-street parking. Um, you know, is going to be something to evaluate. Um, and then do, do we want to pause here? Do we want, I, I can quickly cover the parking and then we can kind of combine the last uh, couple of feedback sections. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. Um, you know, so right now at this level, we're just looking at some options for on-street parking. We're not really recommending anything. This is just a couple of pros and cons. 
Um, obviously, the easiest to implement would just be wayfinding signage, uh, similar to what you've got downtown, making sure people coming from both directions understand that, um, you know, that there is available parking either in off-street lots or on the side streets, um, you know, if they're finding that the, the existing parking lane uh, that's left uh, is full. Uh, Time-restricted parking can help uh, for keeping spaces available for people at the parks, um, you know, but is obviously an impact for um, residences. Um, you know, that having it be only between certain times helps, um, but, you know, with the changes in, um, you know, people being in office <laughs> uh, with the pandemic and people that work from home, you know, this doesn't necessarily work uh, if your, uh, your vehicle is still, uh, you know, at home all day, uh, just and you can't move it in between these hours. So, uh, and then this also becomes an enforcement issue for the city, uh, you know, maintaining the, the ongoing costs of um, having someone out there to enforce the, the parking restrictions and ticketing and all that. And then two other options, uh, you know, permit zones. Um, this is not something that the city has uh, infrastructure in place for right now. Uh, so there'd have to be a whole, you know, at, at the city, you know, a whole department to, to issue permits and maintain permits and, um, you know, track them when they're expiring and, you know, people moving in and out. Uh, but then in addition is the, uh, the enforcement. But, uh, you know, the, the permit zones do give priority to the residential areas, um, you know, and maybe a mix of permit and time. Um, timed parking is something that would be applicable in this corridor so that you have some parking that's set aside for uh, residences while there's others, uh, you know, near the park that's, um, is more of the time limited. Um, the other thing that you could do, uh, you know, to get to your point about the deliveries is um, delivery zones, uh, you know, curb management is, is such a big topic right now. And, you know, especially in those areas where you have more multifamily, um, it might work to have, you know, two, two spaces or three spaces that are just reserved for, you know, I know you have it in downtown because I've tried to park in it and been like, oh, I can't park there. But, you know, five minute spaces or 15 minute spaces, um, you know, to just make a delivery and uh, to come back out to the vehicle. So, uh, and then private lot time arrangements uh, that uh, the one building near uh, Houghton Beach Park has these signs, uh, you know, that it's available to the public uh, after business hours. So uh, there's other opportunities within the corridor. There's a church, uh, I believe it's off of 7th. that's um, only about a block away that has a nice big lot that could potentially be a, you know, an arrangement similar to this that, uh, you know, at off-peak times, it is available for, uh, for public parking. So I did want to chip in just quickly on the parking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, city manager and council have directed staff to look at technologies for monitoring parking use in downtown. So that is kind of a separate work program. And in addition, um, as part of the planning department work program, they are looking at curb management policies. And of course, um, public works and transportation will collaborate closely with them uh, as it relates to a number of different things. So I think in terms of this corridor study, it's really just this high level strategies that would apply to mitigate removing parking um, more than what the actual strategy is or the nitty gritty details, which I know is a little bit beyond what we wanna get into um, when we really are kind of looking at the high level picture. And then eventually we'll go to council for kind of next steps of what they would like to do um, in making a decision on the corridor, which you've got on the, on the timeline here. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So tonight we were just, you know, kind of presenting our work to date and our options uh, to gather your feedback and your reactions to it. Um, you know, we'll come back in, uh, in what, three months time, two months time. Yeah. Three months time. Uh, and present our, uh, you know, our, our full options, full length options and our, 
you know, analysis of those by those criteria and kind of the pros and cons of each. Um, you know, our scope is not to provide that uh, the, a single recommended option, but it's just to provide, you know, here are three options and here's how we kind of rank them. And, you know, the decision is ultimately going to be in the hands of council, uh, which we will present uh, in January of next year with all of your feedback incorporated from the two touch points with you guys. Great. Any other questions on the board? On, oh, we got Brian. Yes, I love evaluation criteria, so I have, so I have questions. <laughs> um, first off, I, I do want to say, like, as I was looking through it, you had on screen earlier and some of the bullets that were in the, the packet, there were a lot of good specific criteria in there. I, and it kind of, we touched on it earlier about kind of understanding the, the considerations of mailboxes and trash pickup and driveways and all of those visibility safety issues. I, I like those a lot, so they're good to have in there. Um, one thing that may be good to kind of clearly break out when you come back is um, breaking out, like I would call it safety and experience by user group. So that way we're looking at it in terms of not just holistically, you know, but we're looking at it in terms of the people that are most vulnerable pedestrians, next vulnerable cyclists, and then drivers. So that um, when we have all the criteria there, we're kind of understanding who we're serving the most in, in this. And if there is certain differentials across the options, we can kind of parse that through. Um, and one other thing that I saw in there and we touched on a little bit was kind of like the public desire. Um, it was mentioned in the packet about how public desires are represented in the criteria. Do we know, has there been like a specific collection of input um, who has been included in that to have that reflected in the criteria? Yeah, this study won't have a public engagement piece as part of it. Um, there was a lot of engagement around the pilot project when we were talking about that in COVID. Um, you know, I've assembled all the Q alert comments, the R Kirkland comments that have been submitted through the city website in the quarter in general. Um, but I think ultimately, because this is more of a technical study of what could you do design-wise and what are the trade-offs and really issuing that decision to council. I think that would kind of be the next step is if council picked a preferred option and then we could talk about pilot implementation and talk about a full track process, a full public engagement campaign really, I think would, would be needed to be done because it is, uh, I think, contentious you know, parking is a precious commodity. And I think this neighborhood in particular has gone through a lot of difficult decisions and issues um, citywide. So yeah, that's why we're kind of putting that public engagement pieces until the end of the study, because it's really more like what are the trade-offs and really outlining what they are um, to inform that instead of a more emotional response. Yeah, and I, I can see how there was some stuff that was some outreach that was done much earlier before maybe the visuals like this are together, which made it harder for people to understand what was being proposed. One of the challenges that may come through afterwards from public perception is that they didn't have an opportunity to provide input on what's being suggested until council has selected a preferred alternative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there, there may be a potential risk there for the city in terms of how people look at this. Um, and there may be one really clear kind of option that is heads and shoulders above the others, but um, there may be some kind of hurt feelings publicly on how that process may be set up to, to proceed. Definitely, I hear you on that. And I think 
um, council is very cognizant of that too. So it may be when we come to them in spring, they'll say, let's take the three out and see what people say. I think that's definitely mm -hmm. a possibility. Yeah, like I'm, I'm all for get this done as fast as possible. <laughs> um, but I was just kind of thinking about that as we were going through. Um, I just to jump yeah. in here a little bit. I, part of the reason that we parsed this um, the way we are is because the range of the options are are so wide. Um, is if we do uh, the let's say the 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 as as Brett put you know like like the gold standard, you know that's a I don't know you know tens of millions of dollars um, uh, option that probably happens you know, is rolled out over many years. And it may be that the city then decides, well, that's what we really want to do. That's what we need to do. We're going to do that in a decade. Um, well, in that case, that outreach is very different than, man, we love the paint and pylon option. And we feel like we need to do something in this the corridor in the next four years. And so we got to get out there and do a trek. Or maybe we've got a couple of different paint and pylon options and we got to get out there and do that because we want to do that next six years. Since those two outreaches and those two processes are so different, it felt like this first stage made a lot of sense to it be more of a technical exercise because this is such a precious corridor to the community. Um, you know, we could make that decision based on, you know, we could go, hey, let's throw together a few cross sections, have C, have Rod over and CIP throw together a couple of cost estimates and let's make a decision, which way are we going? But it seemed like because of the importance of this corridor, it deserved this kind of, and the kind of the possible controversy around something like that. It deserved this kind of level of analysis so that that decision make, can be made in like a more holistic way by council. And then that will determine whether we do a, you know, a full outreach in the next couple of years or whether it's, you know, goes into the TMP as a conversation point and we come back to it in a decade, that kind of thing. Thanks, Joel. Yeah, sure. yeah it makes sense. And I, I know it's a, it is a very precious corridor. So it'll be a lot of, lot of opportunities for input for people. Um, one other thing on, actually, I only had two final things on the criteria. One was um, placement of utilities might be one to consider in here in terms of light poles, hydrants, the signage that we talked about. Some of them may work better um, in other, you know, versus other section configurations. Um, when we think about appurtenances, especially in terms of whether we call them two-way bike lanes or cycle tracks or even one way, um, that functional width may not be, you know, what we're seeing in there. Um, and so that would be one thing that I think would be really good to see. And then when the, the options are evaluated, is the expectation that the criteria will each be equally weighted? So um, when we talk about like property impacts versus cyclist safety, are they all weighed the same um, or are they weighted individually? Is there an approach that's been decided on for that? Uh, that That is a discussion I plan on having with Victoria later. Yeah, we haven't <laughs> talked about that. And it's hard because some criteria are more of a yes, no, 
and some are high, medium, low, right? So I think it's an ongoing discussion. If um, you have any input on, you know, absolute must top priority, obviously safety is up there for us, but um, if there's anything else you wanted to share as we kind of roll into that next phase, that'd be helpful. Um, I was wondering, I don't know if there's any modeling that's possible um, to inform uh, the amount of uh, like traffic calming um, kind of speed reduction between these different um, scenarios. Um, and if, if so, would that um, be a, um, an evaluation criteria to consider? I think that the the option that had the tree in between the two-way cycle track and the lanes, that's probably going to be your highest traffic calming just because it has the most stuff right up against the lanes. Uh, whereas the others, you know, it's maybe a little bit more open, even though it, you do have, you know, the curb and the, um, the bike facilities. Um, you know, I, I think that there's, because this is a higher volume corridor, there's not as much, you know, physical traffic calming. It's more about, um, you know, the, the side friction of the physical things that are right up against the lanes and just having more people out. I mean, it, it, you don't want to convey that you're using people as, <laughs> as physical traffic calming, but it, it, and it works. You get more people out on the street that are walking and biking and the speeds generally come down. Um, you know, I, I worked at the city of Kenmore before <laughs> I was with Transpo and that's something that we, we saw as, you know, the higher active mode use in a corridor. Um, yeah, generally people, those speeds came down. So. Yeah. I just had a comment in terms of, I don't know how you want to capture this, but you know, I feel like this quarter has got like this two different, you know, you know, temperament, let's say on the weekends when it's sunny out there, out there, it's, it's, it's quite dramatically different from day to day kind of sleepy or just traffic commute going through. So I didn't know if there was a way to capture that the essence, right? We're trying to, it's just trying to, or is this, are these options more uh, accommodating for the, the, the typical day versus more the, the, the peak hour, the peak times, peak use for the beach, you know, sort of thing. I, I don't know. Somehow I, I, I get a feel for how do we, because I think that sort of gets to the heart of the parking, right? Some people say, oh, well, I need parking because I just live there on a day-to-day and so far versus on, you know, on a heavy weekend where everybody wants to park, there's a different intensity. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how there's a way to capture that differences between how the corridor kind of behaves and acts and feels when you're, you're using it. I have a, a comment to kind of add on to that. And, and maybe I think going back a little to what Raphael was saying earlier is, you know, how how would this potentially change the character of the corridor and you know and and what you're asking about earlier of what why are we doing this you know who are we attracting and you know a, a big thing the potential is that especially like aj was saying with people who already live in that area who maybe currently get in their car to go places might now see like i don't need to get in my car i can walk or or a bike because it's a much more comfortable and compelling place, even in December, you know, um, it, during the week or a really nice day in the summer. Um, that it, it it's in that way it could be changing the character of the corridor and 
and who's using it and how it's how it's being used and what modes are being used on it. And hopefully in a significant way, like it cha actually changing the character in a very noticeable way. Yeah, I'm struck sometimes when I'm walking down there that, you know, there's some sections that are so narrow and it doesn't feel that comfortable because when there's a lot of people there, it's tough to navigate. So the wire sidewalks would encourage that usage. Questions, more questions? Where are we at, Brett uh, and Victoria with, with your presentation? Are you wrapping it up? Or? I think that, that concludes our presentation. And okay. thanks for all your comments. It's, it's funny, it, you get me thinking about a lot of different things, but um, Jennifer, one of the consultants on Transpose team did a nighttime visit of the corridor. And she was saying, she was struck that people are out there at. 10 o'clock at night playing volleyball. So it really is a continuously really well-loved used corridor at all times, even though weekends are the peak. And then the other thing is our use patterns are changing quite a lot, right? Like people aren't doing the typical commute times during the week or it's a lot more varied or maybe people are working from home or doing lunchtime walks. So it's hard to get at that daily use pattern or, or, or yeah. use over time. But I think if we just have the goal of an inviting facility at any time of day, that would be a, a good aspiration for the corridor. So sure. thanks all for your comments. It's, it's great to hear. Thanks for a great presentation. Yeah. Thanks for your attention and feedback. Yeah. Look forward to the next presentation. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. So that moves us into comments and updates. Joel. Okay, thank you, uh, Chair. Um, so I'll go over um, things that I have on the list here. So real quick, uh, just since it had been a while and um, back, it's been a number of years now, actually, I guess, but the, the commission was very involved in the development of the 405 and Northeast 85th Street interchange projects. And of course, those the development and implementation of those projects have kind of ongoing, um, ongoing impacts on the commission and kind of all the things that are going on. So, real quickly, um, the 405 132nd interchange that, uh, of course, is construction continues on that project. It will be continuing through the end of 2023, which will be when that project is. Um, open for the, the basically significantly complete and um, open to traffic. Um, things are going pretty well there. Um, they do plan to make a major shift here in the not too distant future um, and shift all of, the, all of the traffic from the south side to the north side um, underneath, the, um, underneath the overpass and they will also be shifting the um, the, the uh, non-motorized, the, the basically the sidewalk connection from the south side to the north side. And they are, you know, having to shoehorn all of that in there as tight as possible. And you, as you probably have noticed, is in order to kind of continue to maintain traffic flow, the biggest impact is prohibiting those left turns um, on each side. But it does seem to be working. 
And um, fortunately, the uh, that right turn lane that the city built at 108th Avenue um, is complete and does seem to be making a difference in the amount of um, afternoon westbound queuing that used to back up all the way back through that inter intersection. And that's not happening, um, which significantly helps kind of make that function. Um, uh, so hopefully, you know, they're, they're staying on schedule so far. And so that's where that project's at. Um, 405 and Northeast 85th Street interchange. They're now um, getting close to wrapping up the procurement process and selecting a design build contractor. Uh, if that all goes according to plan, they will uh, start construction in early 2023. Um, that construction, of course, at first will be probably fairly minor, and then it will build as the year's, year goes on, which actually works out pretty well uh, because it, about then the 132nd interchange will be coming down. Not that there's a huge relationship between the two, but it's nice not to have two crossings of the freeway in full, full construction at the same, the same time. Um, and that project is scheduled to be open to traffic in the summer of 2026. So that will be quite a construction process, um, three full construction seasons. Joel, mm -hmm. a comment on the uh, construction at 130 Northeast 132nd. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, there's a huge impact on people biking through there. And, but a, a good alternative is Northeast 128th. Mm. Um, routing people and even, you know, going, continuing down, going towards the high school and then cutting over. Right. And so I think it could be helpful to put some signs out because I, I happened to be driving with my daughter one day and, and we noticed that a cyclist came out of the um, park and ride there and turned to go on 132nd and went all the way over. And I think it ended up turning back onto 100 to, to go south. And I was just like, oh, if only they knew they could have turned right <laughs> and gone down to, uh, 128th, and it would have been, you know, a much more pleasant ride than being out in construction and all of that. So maybe some, you know, kind of oriented towards bikes and peds, um, kind of a friendlier route is to go 128th, even from Totem Lake, um, uh, all the way on that uh, east side of 405. Yeah, I think that that's a, um, that's a really good suggestion. It's something that we can raise with the design builder and see if sometimes it's very difficult to get contractors to do things after the fact if we're not if they're not specifically mentioned in in the contract but i think that that is the kind of thing that um we are trying to be more thoughtful about going forward is with our traffic control plans is you know how do we require and look at more modes and make sure we're looking at that holistically and stuff like that but that's you know that's a great suggestion and a very you know, it really is a, a perfect example of a, a really good alternative for cyclists who are trying to go through there. Um, well, there's, there should be like line items for incidental signage now. Yes. So it's certainly something we can bring up and see. And we have to go through WashDOT and then WashDOT actually tells them what to do. So, um, so uh, then uh, the last project is the 405 Brickyard to... SR527 project, which will be adding the second express toll lane through that section, and then also at building new um, uh, bus rapid transit stations at Brickyard. 
and then at 522 and improving the one at 527 because it will be um, a direct access ramp in the middle as opposed to on the outside as it is today. That project is also in procurement. It's probably about six months behind um, the uh, Northeast 85th Street project and is supposed to open to traffic in 2027. So there'll be a little construction here for the next few years, but hopefully um, when it's done, well, not hopefully, but when it's done, uh, they'll, um, in 2027 is when um, 405 Stride BRT is intended to open. And, um, and so that'll be uh, all kind of coming together um, at that time. So that's a little quick update on what's going on with those projects. Um, work plan actions at City Council. City Council uh, approved the 2022-2023 um, Transportation Commission work plan on September 20th. And then they also um, approved an amendment to the municipal code that makes it so that uh, makes it consistent with city practice of doing two-year work plans and the commission meeting with council every other year. It actually said we would do that every year and um, that's just not particularly feasible um, and it's not what we've done. So, so that modification was made, they approved that as well. And, um, and so that was, that was great. Um, I wanted to remind commissioners that we do combine our November and December meetings because they're on the Christmas and, um, and Thanksgiving holiday weeks. And so the meeting this year is on December 14th. And so please um, plan accordingly. Um, and uh, then um, I also wanted to mention uh, a couple of new additions to our public works leadership. It's pretty exciting. Uh, we have a new um, an, a new superintendent out at the um, maintenance center. Um, he, his name is Chris Gavigan. He comes from most re recently from King County. He has a lot of experience and um, will be a, a really great uh, addition. And then um, we, since we've had some vacancies out there, uh, we we've um, we're really excited about having these positions full filled because they're, you know, critical, especially to transportation and some of the maintenance um, stuff. Um, uh, Ryan Fowler has been um, uh, hired to be the new streets and grounds manager. Uh, the previous person left about six seven months ago, and we had an acting um, person in there. And Ryan comes to the job from the parks department. And he previously, before he was with parks maintenance, was actually in um, the public works maintenance center as well. And so he's uh, um, shown to have, you know, he's a great leader. And I think he's gonna be a real great addition to that, um, that group. And then um, we've also uh, promoted um, or hired from within, uh, a gentleman named Michael Stansbury, Micah Stansbury. And Micah is um, the new streets and grounds um, supervisor. We previously didn't have a supervisor and the streets and grounds group, which streets group does like paving and stuff, that kind of maintenance work. And then there's a separate group that does grounds, which, 
which is really um, trimming and uh, medians and planner strips and all those kinds of things. And that group to combine was pretty big and they actually just, they didn't have a supervisor for that crew. And they had a couple of leads. Um, so that's a new position and should help that group help, you know, steer that group. So that's, we're looking forward to having them um, all on board. And then finally, um, wanted to mention, what was the other note I had? Uh, was that um, we are currently recruiting for a new transportation commissioner. Um, that, uh, that call for applications opened on Monday and it closes on October 7th, at 4 p.m. So tell your friends. And um, I thought that was automatically backfill with the, the runner up last time. That's a really, uh, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> Um, they reached out, um, the city clerk reached out to the, um, the alternate and the alternate was not able to serve. They had had a change in what they were in their situation as well, unfortunately. Um, so uh, that's where we are with that. Um, and um, finally, uh, thank you to Franz for making this pretty much possible tonight. Um, we got the camera working and everything else. So that's, um, that's great. Uh, and we, um, we actually had pizza and it, it felt like old times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, we were talking earlier that old times only consisted of Kurt and Faith and myself um, because everybody else on the commissioner, this is the first time we've had a, um, had a, a, a meeting that is not um, that is not uh, 100% virtual. So, <clears throat> thank you for um, our patience with that. A few things that I jotted down from tonight, um, while I have you all here, um, I we failed to print meeting materials. Um, that was always in the olden days, kind of a you know, do we print stuff? Do we not? Um, kind of thing. So. Um, I, I, you know, we use way less paper than we used to. So happy to print stuff. If people want to bring computers, that's great too. Um, but uh, if you want to let me know or, or that, that would be great. Um, what your preference is. Yeah, I, I would say maybe we just let Franz know if we're going to attend in person, and if so, if we want a paper copy, so you only print what is needed. That would be great, and and I like that. Is that um, if that's okay with everybody? The default is we're not going to print you a copy, but if we hear otherwise, we are more than happy. If you want to let Franz know, we are more than happy to do so. I like that. Yeah, and probably also for ordering enough for the right amount of pizza. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. That's great too. Yeah, for sure. I did my best, but yeah, <laughs> yeah perfect. <laughs> um, and then uh, let's see the um, the other note. I'll make sure the that will also help with. I noticed that there are fewer mics at this table than in the past. I'm not sure why, but um, knowing who's going to be here in person will help with that as well. Um, so that's what I had. Um, back to you, Chair. Thanks. Um, let's go around the table. We'll see if there's anybody else that wants to add something. 
concern, interest? Um, I wanted to mention that uh, East Rail Partners has been doing walks on the, um, well, they just, they had their first one. I think the next one is going to be this week. They're kind of splitting them between the East Rail portion that's in Renton and then the Northern portion, which includes Cross Kirkland Corridor. Um, and I could maybe send you the link for the sign up um, to send out to the rest of the Transportation Commission. You bet. Um, I think it's what they're trying to do and gather is relevant. Okay, yeah. Oh no! I've just I was throughout this present throughout tonight. I was just rethinking back on that PCI payment index, and one of the things I remember from my payment class and my payment days was treating payment early is a lot cheaper than fixing it when it's broken down. And so you know, and what dawned on me was when we were reading that memo it was like going from seventy six to seventy, and the the much more investment that needs to be done to to bring back the road to the conditions that are needed that no to get it back. When we rather than catching it early, so the, the ounce of prevention versus you know paying for it later, you know if, again going back to you know we're spending a lot of capital, is does it make sense to have a a boost in the capital to treat early and not necessarily the worst roads first, maybe treat the best you know some of the better roads and have that savings early. Um, we you know did it for for Massachusetts when when it fixed their bridges. You know there's there's. A, a sweet spot. I don't know if, if you guys have looked at in the past in terms of reprioritizing, you know, bang for the buck rather than just, you know, getting the the worst roads out there. Just just a thought, just kind of. Yeah, and I'll I'll pass that along to our pavement manager. It's certainly something that we've constantly trying to balance. But yeah, he would be able to um, speak to that more. Maybe I could get a little bit of a. If folks are interested, a little bit of a background of like what we're doing right now. Yeah, that would be okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anything to add? Uh, not much to add. I'm a big fan of the eight kilo kilohertz noise that we get here. I don't know what that is, <laughs> what that is either. <laughs> I'll, I'm gonna, it's another. I'm gonna put that on my list of things to do. <laughs> so I will miss it for a month. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dose. Uh, Brian. Uh, nothing else to add from my end. AJ. Anything I have to nothing on my end. Okay. Well, I um I don't have anything to add either right now. Um, but this has been really good to get back in person. I, I like it. I miss it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, thanks to France for getting this all pulled together for the launch of the ship. <laughs> yeah, so for that, uh, with that, I think we'll adjourn tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.